This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day as you're out and about making it happen. Dr. Matt here with uh, Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson. The gang's all here. We're ready for a great show for you. Today, uh, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about moral outrage. Are you tired of people saying, I've had it! I'm outraged. I'm outraged. There's a, there is a cost to uh, our civic discourse, our, our community conversation. And when people get outraged... And then their outrage causes more outrage, and then everybody's just mad at each other. Are we really getting anywhere with that? So we'll be talking with an expert about that subject. What are the costs to moral outrage? Are there better ways to get your point across than just getting mad about it? Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll also talk about um, the the crane that I raced today on the freeway. The bird or the... No, a... Uh, a, a piece of machinery. Oh, wow. A crane. A, was it a big crane? Yeah, it was a huge crane. Wow, I can see why you don't like your car if you can't outrun a crane. I yeah. was—I mean, we were at 80 miles an hour. Really? Yeah. Wow. And this is what happens, I think, when you have younger crane drivers. Like yeah. the old crane drivers, they remember the old days where one crane could take up an entire highway. Mm. But this young punk, he didn't understand the old days. <laughs> And he just kept – he just wanted to race. Did so he, I, I did he make race. eye contact with you? Yeah, we looked at each other. Well, he, he actually looked down on me. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of people do. Well, I mean, no, in just cranes. his cars. In cranes, though, that's yeah, what I mean. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. He just – he was looking down at me, and I'm just like, like I'm going to let this crane pass me. So I just put my Tiptronics on and just started downshifting. But I took him. I mean, it wasn't a real race because I took him. Hmm. But I had to break the law. Wait, do you drive a manual transmission? I, it can go manual. Oh. Yeah. Pretty slick. Good for you for down... Uh, what's the word? Grading? Shifting? No, downshifting. Downshifting. <laughs> <Thanks. I> just, <laughs> it went blank there for a minute. I went from an automatic to a stick, and that's downgrading or downshifting. So your car is a transformer. Yeah, pretty much. But I took on the crane. So it, it was a little mad. It was, I was frustrated. But I guess it beats me coming in saying, man, I followed a crane all the way in for 10 hours. What do you do? What's Did you happening? both get tickets? No, no one got a ticket. Mm. Do you, I mean, who would get the ticket, though? The fast, sporty car with the good-looking 40-something-year-old driver or you, the huge crane going 80 miles an hour. Both of you. With a young, ruggedly good-looking crane operator. Interesting. These are the questions we need to have answers to. This is totally what we, we need help with. So we'll uh, hopefully get you those answers today. Did he have, like, pilot trucks? You know, the trucks that go ahead no. and say wide load? He had, a, he had a pilot crane. He, like, had – he needed a littler crane to help him get the big crane going. Oh, it was a convoy. It was a convoy of cranes. Nice. But they were all heading 80 miles an hour. He was probably texting, too, while he was beating you in his crane. He was eating. Were they in the HOV lane? Uh, no. Oh, okay. They were courteous enough to be not in the HOV, but... Just in the right side. Kind of Just a little kinda, more to the right side. trying to get out of the way? Okay. Yeah. Unbelievable. Plus, there's this really great university student that goes to probably Utah Valley 
Is that what it's called? Utah Valley University. Yeah. UVU. UVU. But he has a, a Volkswagen with luggage on top. Oh, nice. But like the luggage is like decor because I'm pretty sure he doesn't. It's not a luggage rack that then he puts on his. It's like luggage from the 1960s. Oh. I've never known the, anybody to drive a car that has luggage on it just for decoration. No, this guy's got it. He's better or, or the guy's living out of his suitcases. Hipster and his luggage. suitcases are from the 60s. Right. And that's possible. Tourister. I think they were Tourister brand. Hmm. Yeah. So I kept well, – I just – every time – I see him every morning and I'm like, dude, you need to unpack. <laughs> you can't – a guy cannot just always live out of his bug. Anyway. A man cannot live by bugs alone. Yeah, that's true. It's in the Bible. But except John the Baptist, I think, did only live on bugs. That is true. Locusts, so, Wow. I mean, not to get all biblical on you. And honey. Uh-huh. And thanks for the honey to put on my leg, by the way. How's it working? I think you emptied it. You used all of the medicine, and then I think you just replaced it with honey. Because it really is just it's honey. very sugary honey. It's not. and But you, you can't leave your leg alone now, can you? You just keep licking it. <laughs> it tastes good. But is it working? Uh, it seems to. That's not the big problem anymore. The big problem is that my ankle was about twice the size as the other ankle. Yeah, but we've – Terry and I have always been laughing at your ankles. Hmm. Your cankles. My wife, the funny thing is my wife saw it the other night and she thought, oh, my gosh, he's gaining so much weight. This guy's retaining so and much water. Really, it was just my ankle was huge. She's like, nobody told me cankles were part of the deal. What's guy, going on? <laughs> my husband has got huge cankles. <laughs> well, uh, I hope it works. By the way, you do need to watch out with Meta Honey that um, you might attract flies. So if you're just standing at the bus stop and thousands of flies are circling your leg, you might want to put a tighter dressing on it. Mm. That's a good tip. That's a great tip for yeah. anybody out there, really. Really. Yeah. If flies are circling you, you probably either want to stop off at the hospital or saran wrap your wound. Or just take a shower. Or just take a shower. Yeah. See, these are the little bits of information you don't get from any other station, any other time. That's why we bring you the joy of the Matt Townsend Show. Now let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Uh, CSX is a big train company they move all the totally. move a bunch of trains across the country cxx a csx train carrying flammable liquids de- derailed in Heidemann, pennsylvania yesterday morning forcing uh residents living within one mile of the crash to evacuate the town has about a, just under a thousand people in it they all had to leave csx says 32 cars derailed no injuries reported the national transportation safety board has dispatched six investigators to the scene three of whom are expected to arrive uh but this morning, I believe the CSX train derailed at 5 a.m. Wednesday mm. on its way to uh, Chicago from Chicago to New York. It was carrying liquid asphalt, according to the company. A bunch of other wow. stuff also. Locals and state police were able to evacuate the residents shortly after the derailment. Uh, the cause is unknown. It was the third derailment for a CSX train in the U.S. since last November. Uh, they're having a bad go. Yeah, they had one in New York, one in Florida, and now another one in Pennsylvania. So, and it ran yeah. into houses. People were asleep at five in the morning. There's explosions. Oh. It was great. Scary. Just what you want to have at five a.m. Right. The State Department announced Wednesday that starting September first, U.S. passport holders will be banned from traveling to North Korea, and urged Americans already in the country to leave before then. The ban makes passports invalid for travel in 
to or through North Korea and will be placed uh, for one year unless the Secretary of State extends or revokes it. Humanitarian workers and journalists will be able to apply for exceptions to the ban. Don't you think we need more, like, prepositions there? In, through, In, around, through, by, to, near, yeah. over, under North Korea. I think you to- took all of them. I couldn't think of any more. Right. We need one more. With... This is complicated. The North Korean marathon, which yes. apparently is something people really like to go run in, is like, oh, how, happening like, soon. Oh, that's the one with like 28 people that run them. No, there's a lot. Is little, it a big marathon? Yeah, people travel around the world to go to this thing because it's, you know, you can tell your friends. Oh, yeah. The State Department saying don't. I ran for Kim Jong-un. <laughs> That's cool. Hyperloop travel is quickly becoming a reality. California-based tech company Hyperloop One announced Wednesday in a test conducted in Nevada over the weekend, its vacuum-sealed pod reached a speed of 192 miles per hour over a 1,640-foot test run. The feat more than doubles Hyperloop One's previous record set in May when the pod completed a test run that reached 70 miles an hour. The 28-foot-long pod uses magnetic... Uh, levitation to propel itself through a track made of depressurized tubing. Ooh, wow. The target speed for the pod, known as the XP-1, is 250 miles per hour, which would exceed the 200-mile-per-hour mark that the bullet trains in Japan reach. Holy cow. Hyperloop travel was first introduced in 2013 uh, in a white paper by Tesla and SpaceX owner Elon Musk. The details were idealistic, envisioning levitating trains reaching speeds of 750 miles an hour. Because you've eliminated all friction. You're just floating on... Levitating. You're just levitating. But you know what? Hyperlooping, Sheesh. this isn't new. I mean, I had kids my age when, what, when I, this was 40 years ago, that, you know, a little hyperactive kid in the country right. say, take a loop. Take a lap. The, oh, that's right. A little different. Hyperlap. Hyperlap. But if you remember, Elon Musk uh, went and met some people in D.C. and then said, hey, I can now dig from, like, Pennsylvania yeah, all the way through... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then they backed off like the next day. He goes, "Well, they said they're yeah, it's a good idea." So, oh, so it's not happening. But it's, it's like the most populated you know corridor in the United States, and he was gonna. He's talking about digging a tunnel underneath. Yeah, all the way from like Virginia through D.C. to New York. I just and just no. well, it's interesting. He almost that whole thing you just described seemed a little bit like a Trump moment. It kind of is. I was thinking the same thing. Like was, Elon was, Musk and Donald Trump, they have very similar extending like the dream. Truth. They like dream big and then yeah. but then they have to retract it. Wrong. Right, and they have to back up. Finally, roosters aren't for everyone. The much maligned male chicken is banned in cities across the US and now one woman in a small town in Michigan is so fed up with hers that she posted an expletive ridden rooster rant on oh. Facebook last week. Oh boy. Largely hailed as hilarious, her post has gone viral, 73,000 views, which apparently is the uh, standard now. Uh, That's the minimum. I, maybe. Daily well, I, I don't know. Allotment I, there, have virility. you seen the video of the little kid bumping fists as he goes down? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that video has 70,000, so it's viral. What's the standard for viral? Everything is viral. Then you find out, oh, it's got like a million views. Like, I thought viral was just not bacterial. Could be. Because that's <laughs> could I've, got, be. I've had bacterial and viral lately. Danelle McCall notes that her, as she calls it, expletive rooster is such an inconsiderate jerk that he wakes her up at 530 every single morning. Even worse, he has no snooze button, but will quiet down just long enough for her to drift back to sleep before he starts up again with his obnoxious cockadoodle doodling right outside your windows. McCall adds that the rooster, who is free to anyone, is a perfect rooster if you want to start running around your yard while you're trying to get away from him. His third charm is that while being chased, his third charm, 
What's yeah. his first two? She needs to clarify this better. His third charm is that while being chased off with a mop, his student makes him look like an instructor of interpretive dance. Oh, boy. So if you're looking for an alarm clock with only setting at 530, a personal trainer and a dance instructor, I have the perfect rooster that is able to fill all three of those positions for free. That's what she said. The last time I went on a rooster rant, it uh-huh. ended in tears, and I was sleeping on the couch. Yeah, I remember. For like a week. Yeah. But th- was that at 5 a.m.? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. But he's that a jerk. Yeah, that was bad. I think the first charm of the rooster is it is its comb, right on its head, right. Mm-hmm. And then, like the second charm is its cute little cockadoodle-doo. Okay, and then the third is he's a dance yeah, instructor. The third is the dance. As you're chasing him with a mop. I mean, that's if you're counting charms. Well, it, it baffles me because she owns this animal. Yeah. She could do something with it. Well, I mean, and are you going to teach a rooster not to do its what its nature? Yeah. Its nature is to wake people up. Apparently, many of the commenters are like, it sounds like it's a rooster. He, you know, yeah. when the sun comes up, he makes his, you know, call. So. This, is, this is nature's little alarm clock. Apparently, roosters that uh, are annoying like that taste yeah. even better. Oh, I think they're fantastic. Yeah. They're breaded. Mm. I love breaded rooster. Do you eat roosters? Just when you're hungry. Really? Okay. Sounds like, really more, hungry. sounds like more fair food. Deep fried rooster. In fact, I th- I passed that by my wife yesterday. I'm like, hey, why don't we go to the fair mm. in Texas? Uh, in in Utah. Oh, I see. And yeah. she just gave me like, I guess no other way to put it, but like stink eye. Oh wow. She's like, good. Mm, no. Yeah. I told you. I'm like, Even- I'll just go with my buddies from the show. We'll just go together because we talk about it all the time. I don't know if we wanted to go either. Even mentioning the word fair just brings out the worst in people. I think you're thinking F-A-R-E. I'm talking mm. F-A-I-R. Fair. You know what my parent, what I would tell my parents when they said we're going to the fair? What? That's not fair. Really? Hmm. Your parents, funny. Um, speaking of funny, Scaramucci. He's got a big... <laughs> the Mooch. The Mooch is going to have an event today, right? A little, it's on uh, Friday. Oh, it's on Friday. Yeah. A, a little, I guess... Announcement, not announcement. He's going to come clean on what happened. It's his explanation of why it ended, why it lasted ten or eleven days, depending on who you listen to. Now, this is not his marriage, right? No, no, no. This is his job at the White okay, House. Okay, gotcha. The marriage is a separate issue. She, she had a problem with his love of Trump and his love of self. Is really what it comes down to. So there was there were other loves in his life. We Main, had mainly see, him. You ought to find out if there are more if there are people around the country that are getting a divorce because they can't agree politically. And we like could, the husband we could loves do, Trump. Yeah, we could do like an intervention on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Just stop watching maybe the we, news. Maybe we could start with the mooch. Yeah. I mean, he's got his event on Friday, so he's busy, but you could catch him probably early next week. His schedule's free. Can I can I just say to all the news agencies? Hmm. And all people that are decent and kind do not show up at this press event. Nobody needs to show up for this. He was fired from the White House. We don't need to go to a presser from – do you remember his last presser? Yeah. When he's like, I'm going to get to everybody. I'm going to get to everybody. Just put put – I'm going to get to everybody. I love Donald. I love Donald. I love Donald. Uh, I am going to, you know, we're going to fire people. And then eventually in another presser, knee knockers, we got all these other great phrases. 
He um, said he stabs people in the front, not in the back. Yeah, he's a yeah. front stabber, which, yeah. by the mm-hmm. way, if you're going to be stabbed, See I'd rather be stabbed in the back. Right. It's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's probably less vital organs back there. Mm. I mean, minus the spinal cord, of course. Right. Well, you know. But I'd rather be stabbed in the back, and I don't want to see it coming. Et tu brute, mm. if you know what I mean. So, um, but Scaramucci's having this big event, and what if the last final rejection from the press, what if they just didn't show? How cool would that be? Well, it's not going to happen, though, because there's cake being served. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you can always lure the press with cake. It's the same thing we can do with our BYU students here. You just throw out some donuts, and then you can have a meeting. I peeked my head in there. They made the announcement that there was going to be donuts and yeah. bread or whatever. I peeked my head in there and uh, or poked my head in there, and everybody just stopped munching and just stared at me. And so I slowly backed away. It was really awkward. But uh, it was like a bunch of flies consuming everything. Well, okay. Was Are you sure those flies weren't from your... <laughs> your leg wound? <laughs> Sorry. Well, they did seem to follow me around after leg, that. Yeah. I mean, so maybe it wasn't... Maybe it was just you walked in with, like, a bunch of flies around you. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's before you put the honey on, right? Now the honey's, it'll take care of it. You're a monster. By the way, this cough is not going away. Yeah. I was up all night coughing. You just laughed yourself into a I, coughing fit. I can't laugh. That's great. My, I'm wearing out my mute button, my mm. cough button, and then you're talking, and I'm over here coughing, and I know we're yeah. still picking up my cough. Well, yeah. So I need, I need help. I need help. It's cough medicine? I've tried it all. In fact, right now I'm on every medicine you can imagine. Really? Mm-hmm. I got. I got. I can smell dextromethorphan dripping off my skin. Whoa! Wow. That's a big word. Yeah. Well, it's what you do all night when you can't sleep. You just Google dextromethorphan and guaifenesin, and <sighs> you know you should you should feed a cough. Wait, that's a cold. Yeah. What do you do for a cough? I think you just kind of deal with it. I kind of like the idea of feeding a cough. Yeah. Any excuse to eat. Well, why don't you feed my cough? I feed chokes. Like, if you're choking, the best thing to do is just keep eating, and it'll push the rest of the food down. Really? Yeah. That's actually counterintuitive, isn't it? Because your body's saying, no, 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 push it out, push it out, and you're like, no, keep it in. Force it down there. That may not be the best advice. No. If anybody has any advice for how to handle this cough that I, I actually can feel it now working from the bottom of my lungs up and from the top of my lungs down. Wow. So right now I have a really healthy middle lung. Hmm. For but now. The, but the top and the bottom, they're, they're apparently filling up with fluids. You haven't tried the Meta Honey with maybe with a little lemon in it? I'd have Get to a little tea I know, going? I'd have to aspirate it. Hmm. I think so. Anyway. I don't want to put a damper on the show. I don't want to like this. It shouldn't be a downer. I'm not dying. It's just, it's just hard to breathe. And every time I laugh, I just break into a fit. So let's just let's just try not to laugh on the show for the rest of the show. Everybody okay with that? <laughs> yeah, good times. Okay, we will uh, we'll be back. This is going to be a great interview. We we actually recorded it. Uh, two days ago, and uh, it's a fascinating discussion about the costs of moral outrage with a philosopher, for heaven's sakes, going to give us some insight into uh, what is the best way to get your point across if, instead of just getting mad about it. That's all straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
You know, it doesn't matter how careful politicians are. There always seems to be someone who gets offended by what they're saying, right? Political correctness, it's becoming a monster, and and moral outrage has reached new heights on seemingly small issues. Are there costs to all of this moral outrage? Joining us to talk about it is uh, Dr. Brandon Warmke. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He has done work on the ethics of public discourse, and he's joining us today to walk us through an article he uh, wrote titled, Why There Are Costs to Moral uh, Outrage. Uh, Dr. Warmke, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Matt, for having me. What an interesting um what an interesting topic, because you do. You see more and more people that are just outraged, upset, cannot believe what somebody did here or what one politician said here or uh, certain behaviors of others. And, I, I mean, I guess it's, it makes sense that people can be that angry, that they're outraged. Are, are we seeing more and more moral outrage today than ever before? Well, you know, I don't know if we're seeing more uh, moral outrage. I think uh, what is true, and we are in a unique period of history, is that every single person um, has a platform open to them uh, to express outrage. Uh, so, you know, you can go on political opinion media at night, you can sign up for Twitter, you can um, on Facebook post, uh, you know, whatever that day you are upset about. Um, so we have platforms available to us. Uh, that perhaps at no point in history we've had uh, available before. And these platforms, um, they tap into a feature of our psychology that um, incentivizes us to uh, engage in public discourse, engage in outrage in certain ways that are often um, not real healthy. No, it's so true. And I mean, really, because now if you have a, I mean, I have 45,000 followers on my Facebook page. If I wanted to be outraged, I could take it to my Facebook page and all my fans could get behind me. But I, I guess in this, then then there's there's kind of a downside to um, the outrage. There's there's we lose. I mean, we could use these these sites and these platforms to create better discourse. But it seems like a lot of us don't know the rules of public discourse well enough to know how to keep a keep it a warm conversation. That's right. So I um, I speak to you as a I'm a bit embarrassed to say I'm a, a self-confessed hopefully reformed Facebook war hero. Um, when I was in grad school, you know, if, it seemed to me like there was no Facebook discussion that didn't require my expertise, uh, th- and that I couldn't settle conclusively. Um, and I was losing friends. Um, I, had, I had my brother and friends would write me and say, Hey, man, you really need to rethink this. Uh, it really is, for a lot of people, the Wild West. Um, uh, the, the well-known Australian philosopher, Kurt Baer, um, who wrote an article a number of years ago describing a lot of moral talk as rather repugnant. Um, and, uh, and you're right, there are no rules. Because these platforms are um, quite new to all of us, we haven't been able to coordinate and figure out what the norms are. Um, is it okay to pile on in cases of shaming? Um, how do you know when there's enough shaming that's been done? And so um, with my colleague Justin Tosi at Georgetown, um, we've been sort of writing some papers, thinking through what, um, 
what are the rules? What are the better or worse ways to speak to one another in the public square hmm. about controversial moral and political issues? Yeah, no, I thought on that sounds like it, you would think we wouldn't have needed that because but public discourse has changed, you know, you're no longer standing on the street corner. You're now, you know, sitting in your underwear responding on some chat group or um, and it and it might change the game a little bit. Or if you, you're a paid personality who's supposed to get ratings, so you might be more controversial for a reason. But you also bring it, and I'm sure this gets into your content, about um, now we, we have grandstanding. We have a lot of people that are so outraged. We have a lot of people that are supposed to be opinion-based. Um, we've segregated it by every kind of way possible to segregate humans. Is um, what's what's the downside to to not having these rules, not having some of the norms about our public discourse? Yeah, there are a lot. So let me just mention a few. Um, so one negative consequence of what we call moral grandstanding, which is basically treating moral discourse as a vanity project. It's um, treating public discourse as a way to morally self-promote. Um, one downside of treating discourse in this way is um, a phenomenon that a number of psychologists and political scientists have studied, and that's group polarization. So uh, group polarization is uh, a phenomenon by which you, know, you get a, a bunch of people in a room together uh, holding uh, certain views, and they walk out of the room actually holding more extreme views. Hmm. And one way that this can happen is, um, well, look, suppose I think of myself as occupying a certain um, sort of morally enlightened or morally respectable place. I, I think of myself as, you know, caring deeply about justice or um, having a finely tuned moral sense. And then you, um, you make your moral claim. Uh, Senator X should be fired or this is, this is by far the worst thing I've seen this year. You reveal your position as someone who, who cares deeply about these things. In order to retain my position within the group and sort of retain my impression of myself as um, a moral sage or more morally enlightened, I have to outdo you. I have mm. to say, oh, no, the, the senator shouldn't be fired. Does anyone know uh, the legal ramifications of what she'd done? I, th I think we should um, – we should raise uh, the legal question. Uh, the world is watching. We need to, um, uh, you know, promote justice or whatever. And so you can see what often happens in these moral um, discussions is a form of a moral arms race where hmm. people are competing to outdo each other. And what this um, ends up uh, causing is a kind of group polarization where people at least profess to hold um, you know, implausible or false views. And what a number of um, psychologists and political scientists have discovered is that group, polar group polarization has all these negative consequences. You're less willing to compromise with people who disagree with you. Look, if you think that the person on the other side of the aisle is evil, that they want to kill children, that they want to kill immigrants, then um, you're not going to be motivated to compromise with them. Um, so group polarization is bad in democracies. It, it decreases our desire or incentive to compromise. Um, and it also promotes false and implausible views. I mean, moral grandstanding, Wild West public discourse is not a truth-tracking enterprise. That's not a way to figure out the truth. Hmm. So 
false and implausible claims that often are the result of um, these sort of reiterated Wild West conversations are going to likely to lead um, going to likely lead to lots of people having false and implausible views about morality and promote the view that morality is a nasty business full of implausible claims, full of people who are just trying to uh, make a name for themselves or show off their moral bona fides. And yet we all, and if we have similar views but not as aggressive or not as extreme, um, we don't know, I guess, who to follow. Like, because I, I just see the talking heads fighting about positions. And I kind of believe that, but I'm not that extreme or I'm not. I mean, it's almost like we don't we don't know what to do but to stay polarized. That's right. And you raise a nice point. I mean, so here's one explanation for why everyone seems so angry about almost everything, um, big or small. And that is, um, look, psychologists in particular, um, psychologist Linda Skitka has found that, um, to put it crudely, how much you care about a moral issue is correlated to how emotionally charged you get about it. Hmm. So the more that you care about something, uh, you're going to um, tend to have greater emotional responses when discussing or defending a view. Uh, now, in lots of cases, this is perfectly innocent, right? You know, you see, you hear a story about human trafficking and you're outraged. Um, but the problem is that people can exploit this feature of our psychology. So if I know that um, expressions of outrage can be a reliable signal of how much I care, then if what I really am after, or part of what I'm after, is impressing you with how much I care, then I can be outraged about everything, right? Because um, what you'll take from that is, well, the most outraged person is probably the most moral person. They're the person who cares the most. And so right. you, you see, you know, you turn on uh, your 8 p.m. cable news, everyone's angry. Well, why are they doing that? Here's one explanation. They're trying to prove to you that they um, care most about these issues. How interesting is that? Like it's, yeah, you're trying to see who's most outraged. That's right. Yeah, we call this outrage exhaustion. Um, and, and what happens is, uh, look, anger and outrage are perfectly appropriate and fitting responses to lots of terrible stuff in the world. Um, but in order to protect that signal in order to protect the fact that when you see anger, you think, oh, you know, the sirens go off, and you think, oh, this is really bad. You have to sort of use it wisely. Um, if, if everything, if every bad thing in the world um, sparked uh, high amounts of outrage, then you dilute the signal that outrage sends. Hmm. Um, and so this is, you know, people, people check out. You know, this is, the, this is the new Twitter outrage of the day. You know, a lot of people think, uh, well, um, I don't have time for that. I don't have the emotional reserves to get angry about that. And then people don't care. And this is another reason why a lot of political and moral discourse promotes cynicism, is once you see this as a motivation for why people are engaging in discourse, you just come to think, uh, gee, morality, public discourse, political talk, this is a nasty business, and I don't want to be a part of it. Oh, it is. And, it, and then it becomes exhausting. And then then you on the side, you start thinking, I don't even care anymore. And but to not care then is outrageous. And boy, what's happening to me? Why am I such an uncaring, unloving person? Anyway, interesting stuff. Let's come back. We're speaking with Brandon Dean Warmke. He's a professor, assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. And he's walking us through his talk, his uh, his article in the conversation dot com. 
why there are costs to moral ra- outrage, helping us understand that, uh, you know, it's I guess it's one thing to be frustrated, angry, uh, but it's another thing to, to take it to grandstanding and, and the negative impact that that has on on our our public discourse as well. All that straight ahead. Up next, uh, we'll be continuing the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Brandon Dean Warmke. Brandon is an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, and he has has done work on the ethics of public discourse. And uh, he's walking us through maybe some of the rules that need to be there when it comes to public discourse. Otherwise, we just have to be more outraged and frustrated about the moral incompetence of everyone around us. And once you start ratcheting that up, it seems like it's going to create a lot of problems and cynicism. Uh, Dr. Um, Warmke, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Matt. I mean, it really does. Like, it's we feel this imperative to Republicans to be disgusted by what Democrats are proposing. Democrats are outraged about what the Republicans are saying. The independents are outraged that there's two-party system. I mean, everyone's got some reason to be angry. And in the end, it seems like we don't – we're actually missing the discourse. We're missing the benefits of learning to talk. That's right. Uh, so – Let's think a little bit about um, casting a better picture of, of moral discourse. Um, so, look, uh, there's lots of nasty moral talk out there. Um, here's one response to it. Uh, call it out. You know, when your political opponent is grandstanding, when your political opponent is um, excessively or inappropriately outraged, uh, you, you publicly criticize them. Mm. You shame them. That's one kind of response. And... Um, I suspect this is perhaps a dominant form of um, attempted correction to public discourse. Well, if you see someone behaving badly, uh, well, we are the moral police of the, of the moral discourse. Let's call them out. Um, my co-author and I think this, this, is not the, this is not the best way to go, and there are a number, number of reasons for that. We, we don't recommend calling out people for, for grandstanding or what some people call virtue signaling. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. One is that uh, often the charges are just going to be returned or worse. Um, so I say, Matt, why are you such a grandstander? And you say, Brandon, why are you such a grandstander? Mm-hmm. And then we get in a, a pointless discussion about what's in my heart, what's in your heart, how much do you really care about the poor. Um, that's going to devolve into um, another nasty, unhealthy, unhelpful contribution. Another reason why you probably shouldn't go around accusing people of grandstanding is that you probably um, you probably don't know enough whether uh, you don't know enough to justify accusing them of grandstanding. So grandstanding involves you know wanting to be seen as a moral paragon and saying something in order to get people to believe that about you. But you know those are things that are in your head, those desires, and I may not know for sure whether you really want to be seen as a moral paragon. And so in a way, it's kind of unfair to you if I simply strongly suspect it to criticize you or blame you for it in public. Um, Now, some people have said, look, uh, you know, just because you don't know in a particular instance whether there's grandstanding, um, how could you possibly say that there's a lot of grandstanding going around? 
And, and one way to think about that is, look, um, it's very hard to know whether someone is lying to you, but um, it seems obvious that there's a lot of lying in the world. Um, right. If you were to scroll through Facebook or Twitter, and, and over the course of an hour you see a number of suspected cases of grandstanding, um, in any specific case, you might not be justified. You might not be surprised if you found out that the person wasn't grandstanding or trying to show off their moral bona fides. But if over the course of an hour or two you didn't discover dozens of cases, that would be surprising. So we just don't think it's good to go around criticizing. So what do you do? Um, we don't know. Uh, here are a couple of <laughs> suggestions. Um, so one is is just talking about moral discourse itself, doing exactly what you're doing today, is is asking people, encouraging people to reflect on what is the point of moral discourse? Is the point of discourse to um, get together and collaborate and to identify problems and to discuss solutions in a spirit of um, openness and compromise and charity? Or is the purpose of discourse to sort of enter into this arms war and show that my side cares more about the poor or the immigrants than, you, than your side does? Another thing that we, that we can do that we recommend is simply to self-reflect. Um, and, and this was big for me in trying to um, hang up my Facebook war hero uh, status is, um, am I doing good with my moral talk? Um, is this really helping people? Um, or am I simply trying to convince people that I'm right, that I have the best moral views, that I'm smart, that I'm clever? And I think what a lot of people will find is when they self-reflect on why they engage in moral discourse, um, it's not always a pretty picture. Mm. No, that's great advice. And it, I mean, just uh, am I in it for the right reason, for the right motive? Am I, am I willing to change my own view as, as I'm influenced by others? That's right. Um, a lot of people don't go into moral discourse with a sense of um, openness, uh, uh, a sense that they might come across evidence that, um, that gives them pause. Um, they engage in public discourse uh, to win a war. Right. And that kind of mindset is um, – it's, it's just not usually healthy for a democracy. Now, Having said all that, look, there are some things that are non-negotiables. You know, we're not saying, you know, if someone suggests we should legalize you know, childhood slavery, that, well, I should be open about that. Right. Um, but for issues that are difficult and controversial, um, a bit more humility, I think, is, is, uh, is typically called for. That's right. Well, and usually, I mean, if, if, it's such a, if it's such an extreme idea or a ludicrous idea – you usually don't need to lift up the bravado and the anger and the outrage because the idea will sink on its own. I mean, it seems like in in discourse, our ideas should be able to combat themselves, not not me having to put you down in order to make the point. The idea itself should be able to be coherent enough to stand the test of time. You would hope. Now, this is the criticism of of um, our work and our views is that. Uh, we're being idealistic. Look, people aren't um, these dispassioned, critical thinkers and reasoners. Um, they don't simply evaluate the strength of arguments and come out with the right conclusion. We're, we're emotional creatures, and we respond to emotion. So this is a criticism of us, um, you, know, where, you know, where we say we have sort of had this view of, like, sitting down and working things out. Um, that may be unrealistic. Um, so it, 
it is difficult um, to know how to think about public discourse. If you simply think of it as a kind of battleground where, look, our side is right, politics is power, and we have to exert our power over the people that are wrong, then you have a very different view about what public discourse is. And what we would encourage is a, a view that sees politics not as war, not as a battlefield, um, but as a place for people to work out their differences and try to live uh, peacefully in a way that they can trust one another to not um, to not do bad to them. Yeah, you see it Yeah, as more of a collaborative versus competitive process. I guess part of what I'm seeing, though, too, is I, I used to be so caught up in the whole political world, all the political talk, and um, even my show, I would get caught up in it on the show. But what I realized is how many people are seriously so disengaged from it, don't care, mm-hmm. don't, aren't interested, and yet so much of the news and the media and the cable channels are still centered on it that we feel like it has even more priority and, and precedence. But I guess in the end, what you were saying earlier is the key. It's how am I doing in the discourse? What am I bringing and why am I involved? That's right. And uh, this is an insight that um, uh, spans uh, from people like Nietzsche all the way to Jesus, actually, believe it or not. Yeah, so cool. you can find inspiration from all over <laughs> They're there. The, the history. And that, and that is, look— um, you, you shouldn't use morality as a cudgel. You, sh- you shouldn't use morality as a power play. That's not what morality is there for. And yet it's, it's very tempting um, to use public discourse, to use morality in, in these ways. The hope, though, is that there, there's a better way. And, what, and I guess what you're saying is when we use it as a cudgel, we then tor- we turn people away from morality. Yeah, it's a turnoff. Um, it's that's right. It's a yeah, it's not painful. only morality, but yeah, that's right. Not only morality, but politics too. Mm, I mean, true. Uh, there's a famous political scientist, uh, Diana Mutz, who's argued that the people who um, are most involved in politics, what she found was they actually have the least what she called cross-cutting exposure, which is exposure to people of different views. And so what, you, what she, what she um, surmised is that politics is full of really engaged, passionate, devoted people who have no idea um, what people on the other side actually mm. think. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a serious problem for democracy. Oh, it totally is. Oh, wow. Well, Brandon, I think this is awesome. Awesome article. And uh, keep up the great work there at uh, Bowling Green. Seriously um, powerful. The website, go check out the website, BrandonWarmkey.com. He's at Bowling Green State University. And this article, um, What Are the Costs to Moral Outrage? Why Are There Costs? Sorry. Why Are There Costs to Moral Outrage is a great article to begin your journey in improving our public discourse. And again, let's not use our morality as a cudgel. Let's not use our sense of right or wrong, good or bad, religion even, as a way or a means to hold someone down or beat someone up. Interesting lessons, I think, for all of us. Uh, Up next, we'll continue the journey. We'll continue to learn and do what we can to help uh, all of us uh, live healthier lives, love stronger, and lead more effective uh, communities. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, everybody loves a good trip to the grocery store, don't we? Do they? Uh, Some people drive. I know know you're not a fan. I'm not a big fan of any shopping, any form of shopping. Don't get me wrong. I love Amazon. Well, that's different. That's sitting on your couch with your computer or whatever. And enjoying it. So... You've found some research. The the headline here, it's out of the Chicago Tribune. Grocery stores are adapting to mail shoppers and treating them like knuckleheads. They must, they think we're, we're, we're idiots. We're dopes. Yeah, like every commercial with a guy in a grocery store. Yeah. You're lost. says, according to a new new survey by by Men's Health, which found that 84% of men are now the primary grocery shoppers in their households, marking a 19% increase from a decade ago. But it's Men's Health and they only talk to men. Yeah, because right. if you ask women, they'd be like, other surveys. So they, they said it was eighty four percent. Other surveys have found that men are more likely between like forty one and forty nine percent the primary grocery shopper in the home. Hmm. So in that way, and, and, and it helps that people want to be foodies or whatever, and they want to cook more, and that's becoming a trendy thing yeah, to do. Yeah, or, cool. I'm just like, you know, can we microwave that? I just move on. Uh, it says, but because of that, grocery stores are having to kind of shift how they approach marketing their items when they put it out in the oh. aisles and how to, how to get people to buy things yeah, if the men are di- there. Yeah, we're different. Yeah. So it says, uh, there are still profound differences in how men and women approach grocery shopping. Men are not terribly strategic. They walk in, buy what they remember is needed. They're buying for right now or maybe tonight, nothing beyond that, right? Then Depends it says, on if we're if we're going in hungry too. Yeah. Says case in point, women are most likely to buy twelve packs of soda, while men are typically buying six packs. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're not thinking down the road. Like I, I told you yesterday, yeah. I walked in and bought some soda. I could have bought four for twelve. I bought one. You're like, why didn't you buy four? And I go, that would be ridiculous. Then I was thinking about. I'm it. I'm not like, even that thirsty. I wouldn't have to go back for like four weeks. Yeah. I haven't huh. bought a six pack since I was like 13 years old. I didn't know they made six packs anymore. Says men tend to be hunters. They want to kill something quickly, drag it out, and feel successful. Yeah. Women, though, are thinking ahead, planning accordingly. Like a gatherer. Men also tend to spring for pricier cuts of meat that are more easily influenced by brand name or reputation. They're more likely to buy what is easily visible and catches their eye. As a result, supermarkets have begun adding more special displays in their store and rethinking their organization. Mm. Many male shoppers come to the store without a weekly or even same-day meal plan in mind, considering organizing aisles and displays around shopper missions like lunchbox essentials yeah. or tonight's dinner and calling out these sections with clear signage so the male shopper can quickly find what he is looking well, for. Then, yeah, then he can go in there and find out what's on tonight's menu. Just look for whether or not they have Cheetos three for five dollars. And it says that's what I'm looking for. Other grocery chains of uh, making smaller changes. They group meats and barbecue sauce together. Oh boy, that was handy. Because we can't find it. Yeah. Well, what else would you put on your meat? And it says finally, uh, meat sauce. Need meat sauce. It says just because uh, more American men are buying groceries doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement. There are definite differences in perception. Men think they are great shoppers. While women, wives, and spouses eh, tend to have a different, less positive view of the performance. Can't we just, can't we just shop our way? <laughs> if they're interested in helping us men, they got to get rid of the math. Yeah, that's why it's so hard. I have my wife go. Three for 13? It's too complicated. Okay, crazy. Little lessons on shopping for all of us. Up next, we'll continue the journey. Next hour, we're talking happiness. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here along with Jeffrey Simpson and uh, Terry South. The gang's all here. We are ready for another great hour of insight and information, the stuff you need to know to help you live a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about happiness and maybe um, dissecting it a little bit, why your chase, your pursuit of happiness may be actually stopping you from having happiness. Now, this pursuit of happiness, is it spelled with an I or a Y? Um, I. Very good. Am I right? Ah. Unless you're in a movie with Will Smith then called was, The Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah, then it's spelled with a Y. I've never understood why that was misspelled. Well, maybe they didn't know. Well, it's not really a happy movie. No, it's kind of a downer maybe, until like the last two minutes. Maybe that's why. Now, that hmm. was it. They, they were they pursuing the wrong happiness. Because I saw that movie and I thought, you know, there's no I in happiness. Um, I think there actually is. No, I was just trying oh, to... Oh. Tell them not to oh, be self. You were telling them not to do that. There's no yet. I in happiness. There's like no I in team. Yeah. Or happiness. We'll we'll get to that. We'll do all the we'll 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 do the spelling of happiness. Figure out the best way to pursue it. Uh, also today we are celebrating not just any day, but it's watermelon day. This is the day you you just take a big bite of watermelon and just Soak in that water and enjoy the hydration that comes from a fruit that's 90% water. Nature's alarm clock, as we talked about on another show. Yeah, because that's right. Nature's alarm clock, we thought earlier was a, a, a rooster. rooster. Yeah. But for you, nature's alarm clock is when you over-consume watermelon yeah. and then you're up all night. If you need to make sure that you're up by 2 in the morning... Just eat half a watermelon. Wow. I did not know it has that incredible effect. Oh, yeah. But if you, it's so full of water that, of course, you're, you'll be up regularly. Wait till you just are 47. <laughs> you'll be up regularly anyway. It's kind of sad, but totally true. And a little personal. Just trying to be personal with you, you all. Wow. Yeah. Uh, again. Behind the scenes with Matt Townsend. I'm trying if, – if my speech sounds a little weird, it's because I'm trying to force a cough down. Oh, wow. Instead of letting it out. Maybe it, you should eat some watermelon. Yeah. I'm mm. telling you, eating will help solve anything. Yeah. It's not It's not helping. Have you tried an apple? No. no I, I walk into my grocery store in the uh, produce department. There's a chalkboard and someone drew a sign and it says, mm. apple a day keeps the doctor away. Really, the idea of it keeps you healthy. Yeah, it doesn't. Really? Because I've had I no, I had an apple all every day last week. So that's a scam from Big Apple. Yeah, Big I, Apple's that's just right. pushing lies. It's again. what it is. It's the Apple Growers of America. Big Apple trying to get Sorry. in on the healthcare. I missed. I right. missed like five of those, so I just had to keep hitting it. You, um, yeah, you had a little sticky finger there. Overeating. Is the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Well, except for diabetes. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so, it is the cause. Well, I did say cause. Oh, oh cause. Yeah. 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 Well, interesting. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Divorce? 
Could be. Cause of divorce. I mean, there could be somebody that divorces because of a spouse that's overeating. Right. Solution, Ben and Jerry's. Hmm. Wow, I've never thought of it. If there was leftover pizza in the fridge and then it just magically disappeared, there'd be some questions that need to be answered. And if that led to something, I... By the way, doesn't pizza sound good right now? Constantly. I have pizza waiting for me in my fridge when I get home. I'm going to go get pizza. Can you guys do this show this hour, and I'm just going to run and make, do an errand. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm going to go get me some pizza. So we'll be talking about happiness. We'll be talking about watermelon. You won't believe this. Uh, a cheesemaker um, offers a reward after a, a theft of their prize-winning cheddars. No way. Hmm. Way. <laughs> Talk about spelling. Little cheese joke there. I can't. I'm, ha- I'm going to have a hard show. Don't laugh. But I can't not laugh. You make, you're so funny, you just have to well, laugh. Well, no, that line, no way. Right. No way. No way. That's funny? No. It's a cheese joke. Yeah. It's kind of cheesy. <laughs> if you get my... Yeah, don't make me laugh. Sorry. Um, so we'll talk about what happens when they steal your uh, prize-winning cheddar. It's a so big deal. We've got audio from the press conference, and it's quite touching, Is actually. It? Oh, yeah. wow, good. I love touching cheese stories. Not uplifting, but it's it will really make you sympathize. Will it move you? Will it move you? More cheese jokes. Don't make me that laugh. That was more of a dairy joke. You're trying to make me laugh now. It's not going to work. So we'll get to that fun. Plus, um, one way not to kill bugs. If you've got bugs at your house, one way you probably shouldn't do it would involve a lighter. So fire. Yeah. Okay. It gets ugly. Hmm. Yeah. Causes a lot of damage. Um. Uh, Plus, a new librarian finds live Civil War era shells in her office. Well, was that a perk? Did that come? Is that part yeah. of her compensation package? Well, I think I'm, she was using them as paperweights. It's all fun and games until you find out that's a live round. Oops. Yeah. What happened to a? What happened to that new librarian? Oh, didn't you hear? Mm. She was playing with a paperweight, and it <laughs> got away from her. <laughs> Uh, so we'll get to all that fun. But uh, first to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. What's up, Terry? Two U.S. service members were killed Wednesday in a blast in southern Afghanistan, the Pentagon said, while U.S. military officials on the ground in Afghanistan have refused to give any information on the attack. Navy Captain Jeff Davis, a Pentagon spokesperson, said the two were killed after a suicide bombing of a NATO convoy near Kandahar. So Afghanistan's still happening. Well... Yeah, according to President Trump, I think we're losing it. Yes, he was. Ta- there's reports that he was talking about firing the uh, general that's in charge of all operations in Afghanistan. I mean, that seems like loose lips sink ships, but also may ruin the Afghanistan war because now they know they're winning. Yeah. In a statement uh, claiming responsibility for the attack, the Taliban claimed to have killed 15 soldiers. Which they didn't, but that's yeah. what they claimed. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, who's definitely not running for president, has hired top Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton pollster and strategist Joel Brennison, political reports, because Zuckerberg is not running for president. Brennison's work is restricted to research for Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan's charity organization. Oh. 
So he's okay. not he's not running. He's for not president. running. He's visiting random people in the Midwest just yeah. to say it's hi. Like he's just going to Iowa. He's on a listening tour. He'll be at the Iowa State Far Fair, yeah. eating everything on a stick. Now apparently Brennison has worked for nonprofit groups before. But mostly known for his work with Barack Obama and Hillary yeah, Clinton. Yeah, but he's not running. He's not. So yeah. So he's just he's just working with Zuckerberg and his wife. No word on if The Rock has hired any sort of strategist yeah. or anything. So we'll okay. see how that goes too. Just keeping you updated. That's good. At least at least we know Zuckerberg's not running on the people not running. Scientists have managed to edit genes in human embryos to eliminate the mutation that causes the heart condition hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mm. study published Wednesday reports it is the first time researchers have successfully edit, edited genes so that all of the cells were mutation free what was the name of that I'm not going to do that again and no extra mutations were formed hypertrophic cardiomicro or myopathy Dr. Affects, South yeah I know affects around 1 in 500 people and can lead to sudden heart failure that's great still the research reported Wednesday is a long way from clinical trials which would be illegal under current law Everybody's weirded out because they're, they're they're messing with the gene chain here. But if it stops these deaths and... Supporters feel that someday this technique could possibly be used to address more than 10,000 genetic conditions. Yeah, like maybe your restless leg. <laughs> <laughs> As they, It could go anywhere. Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, sickle cell anemia, early onset Alzheimer's. All of them could be possibly Huge. affected. And the study is also to spark social and ethical debates, especially among people who oppose designer babies. Well, right. So that the downside is not only will you be able to get rid of all of those other genetic issues, but you can now start exactly choosing what you what traits you want in your child. Right. Designer babies, is that like gap kids? Mm-hmm. Or like Tommy Hilfiger babies? Probably even nicer, like Jimmy Choo. Maybe that my daughter doesn't have my hairline at nine months. Oh. But you know, your daughter, I, she should have your hairline at nine months. Yeah, probably. It's at, it's at 90 years old, she doesn't want your hair. Well, even at 90, she probably should. Right. But it's like 19, she needs her own hairline. I'm just hoping. Hoping for some hair. There's still nothing there. Instagrammers are spending more time than ever looking at photos, videos, and memes. In fact, Users under the age of 25 now spend more than 32 minutes a day on the platform. Users at or age 25 and older use the app for more than 24 minutes. Facebook owns Instagram. They released their finding or their uh, quarterly results on Wednesday, and the, the time spent figures for the first time since 2014. At the time, users access Instagram for about 21 minutes a day. That was in 2014. Wow! Now that's up to 32 minutes a day. They access Instagram 32 minutes a day. What do you look at? I don't know. They're just pictures. I know, but... I have Instagram. I don't look at it 32 minutes a day. I checked it. I use it for, like, baseball scores to see highlights. To, you do? Yeah. They, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL all put their highlights up on Instagram. So at the end of the day, you just kind of scroll through and you can oh, see all the I've top never plays. Done it. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, That's cool. Other than that, I'm like... Eh, some know. reason, I think the people here are running my Instagram, and I have a lot of weird sites on my Instagram that I never chose. Really? I have a lot of sites about cars. Yeah. I don't think I've ever no. chosen a site about cars. That's I am getting interested in vans, though. Vans? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I saw a, yeah. a car dealership. Commercial or? There, well, like, because uh, the, now there's all these people that live in vans, and they're like, it's like the van life, and everyone's really cool, and you're hanging in a Volkswagen van, and you live out of a van. And Isn't that a TLC you, show? You need to surf, is it? Van life? Probably. Probably. Van hunters? Yeah. That's probably it. 
tiny van house or whatever they uh, call it. My little van. Um, like, don't make me laugh. Big van, little world. Mm-hmm. Van beach life hunters. International oh, yeah. van hunters. I mean, mm-hmm. you could do all kinds of different Van, the bounty hunter. Remember that one? Mm. That was a good van show. Um, so I'm thinking of getting a van. Why? Just because it makes you look hip and cool. Does it? And it makes you look like you're really athletic and outdoorsy. Because they always like, there's always a picture of the van looking at like the ocean. Could you just drive your SUV and. I don't have an SUV anymore. Oh, no, I do. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's really? a, mine's, it's a Honda SUV. Okay. It's not, this is hip and cool. All and right. so then you can just like pop open the back of your van right there at the ocean mm-hmm. and run out and surf a few. Yeah. You know, ride a few waves. Catch a couple. Catch then, a couple. Yeah, run back up. R- run the curl. Uh-huh. And then you can come back in and shoot the curl. Yeah, shoot it. Shoot. I yeah. I'm not into guns or anything like that, so I don't shoot it. It's more surfing lingo. Go ahead. But then you then you can come back and like have breakfast. And they show pictures of people that do this. They have have like a hibachi that they pull out. Yeah, I mean it's like everything's so quaint Mm. and the lighting's always perfect. Do you do you live close to the beach where you can do that? No, no, no. Well, so, the Great Salt Lake. I mean, I can just go pop it out of the Great Salt Lake. If okay. there's no algae some... bloom in Utah Lake caused by runoff yeah. from different places. Don't you hate it? Like when you get you finally to, to your Lake. destination and you get your van opened up and you get the lighting right and you grab your surfboard and you jump out into the lake and then you find out there's an algae bloom. Like, oh. And then your eyes are burning and you spend all afternoon. Can I just ask you a question? <coughs> Do you yeah. even own a surfboard? You know what? No. He's got an ironing board. They're about the same. Yeah, hmm. but I actually, yeah, no, I don't. So you've created this scenario that in no way, shape, or form applies to you. Yet. Yeah. The one reason you gave for getting a van. With one or two purchases, problem solved. But see, yeah. Every, but, so a home yeah. purchase maybe in Southern California might be one of those purchases. <laughs> no, because I, I don't want to live in, I don't want a home in Southern Cal. I want a van. He'd live in the van. Down by the river. Yeah. Hmm. Then anything about the van, it's the. I, I think you're just missing the point. If you, if you get into these van Instagram pages, you see an incredible life of tan people, with big playful hair, uh, wearing a lot of beige. It's always beige. Everything's beige and white. Two hundred dollars on Amazon, you could have a surfboard. Yeah. At your house by maybe Sunday. Really? So you're just missing the beach and... Uh... But you, by the way, some of the people don't even go to the beach. You can also just go to like the Arches in southern Utah. Oh, yeah. You could go to Moab. It doesn't matter. The key isn't where... The key is that you open up your doors to your van and you take really good pictures okay. of you just lounging in your sleeper as you're looking out over the beautiful area. I've got the solution. What? Did you ever see the film that came out in the 80s with Michael J. Fox, Teen Teen Wolf? Yeah. No. Probably I You don't need the surfboard, but you need the van. Get on top of the van while somebody drives and you can surf surf on top of the van. Well, yeah. What could go wrong with that? Then you don't need to live by the beach. You don't need a surfboard. You just need a road. But see, I would want the surfboard just to have everybody think I'm surfing. Well, you could go up to the top of the van. Or put it on the rack. Yeah. Yeah. I would need a rack on my van. Too. Okay, go watch Teen fact, Wolf. I better write that down. I need a rack. Uh, Teen Wolf. I, by the way, you need videos. Like you'd want. Oh, you got to have a MacBook. Uh, every one yes. of them has a MacBook. Right. And then they have a lot of outlets for their MacBook. 
You could probably skip Teen Wolf 2 with Jason Bateman. Yeah, that was a bad movie. Yeah, I wasn't even... Just stick with Teen Wolf. I'm not even sure I'll watch Teen Wolf. He went to college and took up boxing for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Strange. Sounds kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, I'm into this. This is going to be really cool. Like, I used to be into Townsend Abbey, like, at the same level. But once you've kind of built a town with 150,000 population and 100% satisfaction, then you're like, what else can I do? So I thought forever... facts. I thought I thought my life would be complete just having a radio show. I thought writing a book would help. I thought having a doctorate. But what I'm realizing is I need a van, and I need more co- or more uh, cotton clothes. Not cotton, but um, what's the what kind of clothes do they all wear? They wear like hemp. They wear hmm. hemp clothes. And um, anyway, that's what I need. Is I. I I just realize I'm not happy because of that. So if I had a van, I'd be happier, which is happening. Anyway, um, before we go to break, I, I wanted to talk about this cheese. Somebody stole a cheesemaker's prize cheddar. And there's nothing worse than making a prize cheddar and then having some Yahoo just steal so uh, a Somerset UK cheesemakers offered $650 reward after two of its finest vintage cheddars were stolen during a prestigious show. The judges at an agricultural show in southwest England had crowned the two hefty cheese blocks champion and reserve champion. And then the specimens were being left in a marquee overnight so that they could be admired by the members of the public. Thieves then took the blocks of cheese weighing 44 pounds each with a retail value of about $1,000. And they stole the certificates, by the way. All of it taken from the tent. And uh, so the the cheesemakers have put up a reward. And by golly, they're going to uh, to find these people. By the way, the proud cheeses rounded flavor with tones of dairy sweet and nuttiness. Sounds delicious. Put that on some grilled cheese. And... (laughs) Excuse me. Anyway, we, ha- we actually have some audio from the press conference uh, to see whatever we can do to get the word out to get this cheese back. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for your time and attention. As you know, the top prize-winning cheddars were stolen from the Cheddarshire competition. And in an effort to track down the parties responsible, one of the cheddars' owners, Aberforth Rushforth, We'll now read a brief statement. Thank you. Our beloved prize-winning cheddars, Chester and Glynis Cheddar, vanished from their marquee last night as they slept peacefully after a long day spent displaying their award ribbons. Their descriptions and personalities are as follows. They each weigh just under 20 kilograms, slightly yellow in complexion, And they both enjoy light conversation while basking in a cool breeze. If anyone watching has any information, any at all, that leads to the successful return of our beloved Cheddars, please come forth and there will be a £500 reward. And if you're watching this and you yourself are the mastermind or masterminds of this despicable act of cruelty... Please, please, 
Please compose yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please bring them back to us. We don't even want to prosecute. We just want our beloved Chester and Glynis back. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Rushforth. No questions, if you please. Thank you for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, friends. You know, passion is a form of positive energy that sits inside of you. Curbing your passion, our passion, can actually hurt our success and happiness in life. So here to talk about how to, uh, to find the balance and, and actually how to find happiness without the chase of happiness which actually is counterproductive, and also how to manage our passion is Susanna Hallinan. She is um, the author of the book, Screw Finding Your Passion, It's Within You, Let's Unlock It. And uh, she's here to address happiness, success, and how to find your true passion. Susanna, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Hey, by the way, did you hear our little uh, story about the cheese in the UK. Somebody uh, apparently has uh, lost some cheesemakers in the UK in Somerset, lost their cheese, their award-winning cheese. So just be yeah, on the lookout I there. about that. That was so bizarre. Isn't that weird? <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Absolutely. So, Susanna, talk to us about happiness because it, it, it seems like a pursuit. We all want to be happy. But one of the big keys, uh, according to the researchers, um, and you're a happyologist, is the idea that if you're chasing happiness, you're probably not going to find it simply because you're in the chase of it. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the, the big challenges with happiness. It's it's really the more you try and chase it, the more you kind of chase it out of your life. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the misconception and the misdefinitions around what happiness actually is. Because I believe that a lot of people believe that happiness is kind of a destination you reach and like somewhere you get to, something you kind of achieve if you kind of achieve all your goals and you're successful and wealthy and this and that. When in fact, happiness is actually more of a daily choice and something that you actually choose to embrace in your everyday life, regardless of where you are or what's going on in your life. Oh, interesting. Because, I mean, it really is. It feels like... Yeah, once I have, you know, my job, my career, my title, my money or whatever, then I'll be happy. But you're saying that is – that's the illusion. And, and one of the things you do bring up is that there are some myths to being happy. Walk us through what are some of those myths. Yeah, well, the, the first is exactly that, that we believe that happiness is a destination, that we think when we get that promotion or when we buy our house or when we get married or when we have our first child, then we'll be happy. So we always kind of keep postponing happiness to and tying it to something that we have to have. When in fact, of course, when we achieve those things, we do feel proud and a sense of achievement, which of course you should do. But after a certain amount of time, your happiness level goes exactly to where it was before what happened. So that's why we need to learn to kind of realize that, well, happiness isn't actually a destination and somewhere we get to when we reach our goals and only when we reach our goals. Yes, we should have goals and we should strive for them, but we should also enjoy every step of that journey because that's how we can really start embracing life in a more meaningful and fulfilling way. And that's when we can bring happiness 
happiness into the day-to-day rather than tying it to some goal that we have to reach Mm. um, in whatever time frame that we've set for it. One of the other misconceptions and myths around it is that happiness is basically being happy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and never having any negative emotions. And that is another one that is very, very dangerous for you to believe in. And I think that's why a lot of the happiness chasing that happens in in today's society actually makes us feel more guilty because we're like, oh, well, I should be happy, but I'm not happy. Oh, I still have moments of stress. Oh, I still have moments of sadness. Oh, I must be doing something wrong. And it's not like that at all, because happiness is experiencing the full range of human emotions, both the good and the bad. But it's just about being able to deal with the bad as well. Um, Because all the positive emotions that we have, like joy and bliss and savoring food and, you know, everything that we do, like laughing and smiling and exercise, all of those things that boost positive emotions, of course, they're amazing things and we need them in order not only to survive but to thrive. But it's important to remember that the negative emotions we experience, like sadness or grief or stress or anxiety or worry, all those things also play a role in our life and in shaping our happiness. Because often when we are stressed or we're feeling anxious about something, it's kind of a sign that something's wrong and we need to change something to make it better. So in a way, the negative emotions that we experience are kind of like a compass, shining light on on which path to take or that we need to kind of adjust what we're doing in order to get more of the positive emotions into our life. And research has suggested that the good kind of balance is three positive emotions for every one negative emotion. Mm, yeah. So it's trying to create that kind of happy balance in your life. And that's when you can really create a sustainable type of happiness that is fulfilling and still allows for all the human emotions in there, but has a focus on the positive ones because those are the ones that will then help you to lift out of the negative ones as well. Well, and is it, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of people that might be muddying the water with, um, with happiness because, you know, like everyone's got a formula, try this for happiness, try this for happiness. But really there's no, there's, there is no one formula to make one person happy. Yeah, that's, that's such a brilliant point as well. It's exactly that as well, because we are all so unique, each one of us as a human being that different things naturally make us happy. So something that might make you know, your best friend happy isn't going to necessarily make you happy. So it's really important to also acknowledge that, like exactly what you said there, there isn't a one size fits all formula for happiness, but it's actually about you connecting to yourself in a better, more meaningful way, because that's when you start to realize, okay, well, what is it that actually gives me positive emotions? What is it that actually gives me a sense of meaning? And once you can start exploring those questions and doing a lot of connecting with your authentic self and reflecting, that's when you can start to really tap into that fulfilling type of happiness that is really true to you. Hmm. So that really, there's a deep tie then to passion and happiness. And because part of passion is being authentic to you, but finding your unique contribution to the world, finding the thing that drives you kind of from the inside out. Um, Talk about passion and Because it does seem like if there's anything we're losing in some regards in our country or in our world is 
some of us, it's we're no longer passionate about our lives. We're, we're, it's just kind of monotonous. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with that. And, and I think that's, again, one of those things that we need to relearn what passion is all about. And like you say, how to really unlock it from within. And I think that tricky thing with passion is that, again, there's been quite a few myths around it. Like from I don't know how young I was, I always remember being told, oh, well, you should, you know, find your passion and then you should follow your passion and, you know, find the one thing that's basically just going to make you happy and fulfilled for the rest of your life. And I tried that route. I mean, I took that path because I, I basically have always had a massive love for horses. So I assumed that was that passion that I found. Yeah. And then I actually followed it. You know, I tried um, a career in it. And quickly I realized actually doing that started to kill my love for it. It started to kill my passion. And then I went the other path, not thinking about passion at all and just going into the corporate world, you know, still keeping my writing on the side because it is something that really fulfilled me. But then I felt like I had zero passion. And I, like you said, exactly like what you said, you're bored, you're unenthusiastic, you're not really sure what you're doing. And that is exactly what I went through in the corporate world. And that's when I really realized, okay, I need to rethink this. I need to try and understand passion in a better way because there's something that we've been taught all this time that doesn't really give us the answers that we're looking for and help us to find that fulfilling type of happiness. So then I went in to do my master's of science in positive psychology. And as my research project, I decided to then research passion. And as I was researching it, I really realized and learned that living life with passion, it's, it has nothing to do with pursuing the one thing you love, but it's actually about finding love in what you do. And again, like you said there, Connecting to your authentic self, connecting to your sense of purpose, both of those things really help you to connect to yourself in a more meaningful way. And when you're connected to yourself in a more meaningful way, that's when you can really start to unlock that positive passion energy and actually take it with you wherever you go. Because too often we kind of expect passion to be almost handed to us or we think, well, I can only be passionate if I do this or if I have that job or if I have this hobby or something like that. When in fact, you can choose to unlock that positive passion energy wherever you go simply by connecting to yourself, to your authentic self, your values, your principles, the things that are most important to you, and to that sense of purpose as well. Because when we connect to why we are doing something, both on a smaller scale, when it comes to doing little activities, like even as simple as doing the laundry or the dishes, um, but also on the bigger scale, well, why do I do the work that I do? Why do I do the job that I have? And you can ask that why question and direct it to pretty much anything. And that's when you can bring meaning into anything as well. And when you bring meaning into the equation, that's when you bring that passion and that sense of positive energy and enthusiasm and so much positive vibes into whatever that activity it is that you want to inject more passion into. And I guess, I mean, that's, boy, that's powerful, right? The minute you can bring meaning with you. It's kind of like you bring your own sunshine, you bring your own energy, you bring your own yeah. light instead of assuming that the conditions we're in are what create the light and the sunshine. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And it's so much more empowering and motivating as well, because then you realize that you are in charge of it all and you can 
change how you feel and how you perceive things and how you choose to approach things. So everything becomes much more meaningful and also much more enjoyable. And naturally, when you enjoy things and you find meaning in them, you tend to perform better as well. So then success will naturally organically follow as well. Yeah, boy, powerful stuff. We're speaking with Susanna Hallinan, who is the author of the book, Screw Finding Your Passion. It's within you. Let's unlock it. And uh, she has a wonderful website as well, happyologist.co.uk, happyologist.co.uk. And uh, we'll continue this journey uh, after this short little break, helping you find happiness, uh, but not chasing it, just opening yourself up to it and uh, finding the passion within. That's all straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Would you say that uh, you are passionate about life, that you know what your passion is, uh, you know what drives you, and um, you're engaged? Because those might be some simple questions, some simple ideas that uh, that you can gather from our guest that we're speaking with today. Susanna Hallinan is the author of the book, Screw Finding Your Passion, It's Within You. Let's unlock it. The idea is that we don't, uh, you don't need to go find your passion. You don't need to narrow down your passion. It's already inside of you. All we have to do is kind of go on a little journey inside and discern what it is that drives you. And Susanna has a, a website um, called Happyologist. And if you go to the website, happyologist.co.uk, you can find that. If you look her up, um, you can find out more about her um, there as well. And Susanna, thank you again for your time and for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So when you talk about passion, um, I, I, I always wonder if it's is, – is passion something like a first world opportunity? It, it, are people in a third world kind of life or an environment – is, is passion on their radar? Is it – is it part of their life still, and is it what drives happiness at whatever level we're at, or is it only something that uh, we talk about in kind of the first world countries? I think it's definitely spoken about um, more uh, in, in, in our world, I believe, um, probably because <clears throat> we are lucky with you know, the, the state of our well-being and, and society and infrastructure and everything that comes with it. But I do believe it still exists um, in in the more developing worlds as well. But I think it has less focus and less emphasis. However, I kind of, in maybe a little bit ironically, do believe that they actually find it easier to connect with it because hmm. they have less. They almost appreciate, they find it easier to appreciate what they have. Um, because again, with happiness and passion, a lot of it is connected to appreciating who you are, what you have, and just basically practicing this attitude of gratitude um, in wherever you go and, and whatever you do. And I believe that actually in the developing worlds, 
it's almost they find it a little bit easier to do that because well they just believe that well we just need to get through the day you know we just need to some people you know god forbid they they are looking just for food they are just looking for water they are just looking for the basic things that we kind of take for granted so it's almost they have naturally a healthier perspective because for them their focus is about survival mm. and if they can just focus on the survival and then appreciate their survival anything that might happen on top of that is just a massive bonus whereas for us in the more developed world we take a lot of those these basic amenities that we have for granted and then kind of try and overcomplicate a lot of the other things yeah so i think we kind of overthink things a little bit and we almost need to learn to go back to basics and just focus on even just practicing that gratitude for having, um, you know, running water or being able to have a, a roof on top of your head or warm food on your plate, whatever it is, because even just connecting to that in a more meaningful way helps you to have a healthier perspective towards everything in your life and towards yourself. And all of that then naturally helps this, this, this passion um, connection as well. That's powerful. And it, it really is um, – I mean it's – every every journey is so personal. Every, every you know, search for happiness is so individual and yet uh, it can also come down to some very basic principles. You brought up mm. in your book five keys of passion. The first one is to be authentic to you. And so what do you mean when, when you talk about, you know, the average Joe that goes to work and uh, is trying to make a living? What, how could they be more authentic to themselves? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. And it's exactly about this authenticity. You can take it wherever you go. You can have authenticity whenever you want. So it doesn't matter what you basically do on your day-to-day level. It's just about you kind of taking that introspective journey and connecting to yourself in a more meaningful way and the question that i encourage always people to ask is just kind of start exploring well what are my top three values what are the principles that i actually want to live my life by you know what is it that's most important and meaningful to me and then once you can once you start exploring those and diving into them then you can ask yourself take it a step further and wonder okay well how is it that what I'm doing right now in this job or in my life, how is that kind of matching with my values? And then you can always find the connections because I think often people are very quick to just say, well, no, my, my job isn't connected to my values at all. No, I'm not able to live it. I don't have that luxury. But actually, when you take a closer look, you can find connections if you look hard enough. So it's kind of just forcing yourself to like, take a look. First, connect to those values that you find most important to you. And second, then think, okay, well, how, how am I already living these values? How can I make sure that they are in my life, in my work, as much as I can? Because when you look for those connections, they do exist. And when you can find those connections, that's, again, when that sense of empowerment and, of course, that positive passion energy really starts to fire up. Yeah. Boy, and then because I guess otherwise you – no wonder you would want to disengage from life if you spend much of your mm-hmm. life living against your values and not even not even like in, a, in an egregious way but just simply not fulfilling what you value most, you probably feel less happiness, less passion and disengage. Mm-hmm. You just disengage. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
And when you are doing this exercise, and if you find yourself thinking, well, I really can't find those connections at work, I really can't seem to find them, then just accept that, okay, well, right now I can't see them, I'll try again tomorrow or the day after, or just maybe look at a few different activities or maybe responsibilities or projects I can get involved in that could bring more of my values in. And also just think about, well, if that values match isn't as strong in the workplace, well, what am I doing outside work that is fulfilling my values because of course it's in, it's very difficult to create the perfect life and the perfect scenario so it's just about also making the best of what you do have true uh nietzsche said uh, i think it was him that said he who has the why to live for can bear with almost any how uh, i guess part yeah. of passion is knowing your why right so how, how do we go about figuring out our why in this world why are we here what why am i what can I offer? Yeah, absolutely. That's a brilliant question. And yeah, I love that quote. It is one of my favorites. And it's it's really amazing how we sometimes get a little bit stuck with that question because it can be very big and daunting thinking, wow, okay, what's my why? What's my purpose? What am I actually doing here? So I'd encourage you to actually take it a step back and just bring that why into the simplest things you do. Like when you get out of bed in the morning, okay, why am I getting out of bed today? You know, what's on my agenda or what's, what's my plan for the day? Um, you do, you make your morning cup of coffee. Okay, why am I making this cup of coffee? Oh, okay, it energizes me, it wakes me up. And just kind of get into a habit of asking, why am I doing this? Because that's when you learn to create meaningful connections to your day-to-day, which naturally start to unlock that positive passion energy and also your sense of fulfillment. Because once you start to just bring that question of why throughout your day, gradually you can start to bring it to that bigger question. Well, okay, why do I do what I do? You know, what is my purpose here? How is it that I want to actually contribute to the world? What kind of positive impact or positive mark do I want to leave? And if you want to dive straight into that question, you can for sure. And But I also encourage you to create those meaningful connections to your day-to-day activities as well. And I think it's important not to be daunted by the idea that in order to have a why, in order to have a sense of purpose, that you should be you know, curing cancer or abolishing mm. poverty or solving some huge humanitarian cause. I mean, if that's what you want to do and you can, amazing, great, go for it. But it doesn't have to be that big. It can just be, well, I want to leave people better off than when I found them. I want to smile to three strangers every day. I want to create more positive energy. I want to inspire my children. You know, whatever it is, you can get that sense of purpose from wherever you choose to. It doesn't have to be a massive humanitarian cause. It's just about you connecting to your life and what you do in a meaningful and purposeful way. Because that that is really the definition of why. It's just about you understanding why you do things and then bringing that positive impact in as well. That's powerful. Um, We've got time, I think, just for one more of your uh, five passion keys. And I guess one, one that really is intriguing to me is the phrase you use of connect to your tribe. So it seems like part of passion should involve people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, and this is the thing we sometimes forget, especially in our very online social media connected world these days, that 
you can't you can't replace real connections with online connections. I love the online world and I think it's brilliant because you do find new people, you make new friends, you turn them into, you know, real life friends as well. But when you're in a room with other people, there's a totally different energy exchange that happens and it's those people that you really need to connect with that inspire you, that empower you, that encourage you. They almost believe in you more than you believe in yourself and you know, they lift you up when you're down. They celebrate your successes with you. And probably you do exactly the same for them. So it's really important to try and think about, okay, who is my tribe? You know, who are those connections that really do lift me up and get that positive passion energy going? Because also it's very likely that you do the same for them. And then to make sure that you are spending enough time with them, you are connected, connecting with them as much as you can. Because in the end, as humans, we are very social creatures. We not only need each other to survive, but we also need each other in order to thrive. And especially we need each other in order to help unlock that positive passion energy and really to create these meaningful connections that, that fulfill our life. Mm. Beautifully said. Susanna Hallinan, thank you so much for your time your energy, your insight. The name of the book is Screw Finding Your Passion. It's within you. Let's go unlock it. And a great book, a great resource. You can get it to Barnes & Noble. Get it out there uh, anywhere online. And you can go to her website, happyologist.co.uk. Happyologist. Just look for the happyologist and uh, you'll get right to it. Powerful insight, isn't it? The power of a tribe, the power of your connections, playing from your strength, Finding your why, being authentic to you, it all leads to passion, and passion, again, leads to a happier life. That's the goal of the show, is to help you be the kind of person you want to be, elevate your game so we all can benefit, and uh, we'll continue the journey up next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's hard to find your passion sometimes, but um, it's even harder many times to kill a bug in your house. There's just that one bug, you know, that's constantly bugging you. No pun intended. And uh, a Kansas woman who tried to kill a bug, uh, it ended up kind of getting away from her. And she tried to kill it in a very uh, interesting way. She was trying to light the bug on fire, but instead ended up setting her apartment on fire causing hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. Ooh. Yeah. Topeka Fire Marshal Mike Martin said that the fire destroyed a building, a part of the Fairlawn Green apartment complex, displacing 17 people, causing $140,000 in damages after the occupant tried to kill a bug with a lighter. Monique uh, Quarles said that around 3.45 a.m. on Monday, her daughter, Ausha, and two-year-old granddaughter told her that there was a bug inside their third-floor apartment. I found the bug, picked up the bug, and I put it in my hand, and I lit it on fire. Hasn't she ever heard of Raid or even a rolled-up newspaper? Yeah, I mean, the the joy of catching a bug is squishing it in a – like a – Kleenex and then throwing it in the toilet. You okay. like that sensation of the crunchy, squishy feeling? Yeah, I call it that magic, crunchy, squishy feeling moment. Hmm. But she instead tried to light it on fire. By the way, in her hand, it seems like she would burn her hand. But uh, anyway, it got out of control. 
They tried to put the fire out themselves using water from the kitchen, but it spread quickly. So the nine one they called nine one one, and then picked up her mattress to check to see if there were more bugs. Her daughter found a medium sized bug, and for the second time, she tried to light that bug on fire. But she used her flip style lighter, starting uh, it started sparking, and the box spring went up in flames. Bada boom, bada bing. The next thing you know, thirty firefighters converge, and it's a full blaze. Maybe she thought she would just light her cigarette from the burning carcass of the bug. Ooh, now that would be a great video moment. <laughs> She's just like, take that, you nasty bug. Anyway, there are better ways to kill bugs. I mean, there's obviously the hairspray blowtorch way. If you're going to burn something down, you, you use the hairspray blowtorch. But uh, not this one. They just decided to light it on their mattress. Be careful, folks. Be careful. Life's fragile. And bugs aren't worth dying for. Call an exterminator, for heaven's sakes. That's hour number two of the program. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. We're wrapping up, meaning one more hour of the three-hour Matt Townsend Show, joined, of course, by Jeffrey Simpson. He's on the keyboard uh, also, um, Terry South will be in. He'll be doing um, a little, I think he's going to be playing guitar for us today. Bass. Bass. It's all about that bass, as we uh, love to say on the show. There's so much to cover, so much to talk about. Today we'll be getting uh, some advice from Heather Johnson, who is an adjunct faculty member here at Brigham Young University. She's going to talk to us about how to give your kids freedom. I mean, it's a scary world. We think that, you know, a lot of things could go wrong, but you got to give your kids some freedom or they're never going to know how to grow up and be a healthy individual. So does this mean, you know, I can make the keys to my car available to my five-year-old? Now, no. We did just have a story about this, I think, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Kids, I mean, kids are stealing cars now. By the way, I, I borrowed my sister's car when I was 13 or 14. Okay. Um, I used to borrow it regularly. And where did you live when this happened? In Salt Lake City. Oh. And I would just get in the car and, well, she'd be gone and my mom would be at work and I needed to get places. I was uh, I was a very busy 13-year-old, 14-year-old. So I would just take the Honda and I'd get it back. Has the statute of limitations expired on yes. this? Darn it. And they knew I would borrow it because one time I couldn't get the car started. Once I borrowed it and took it somewhere, I couldn't get it started at the place that I had stopped. And it, I think it was a manual transmission. It so you was. Had to go in about, you had to go about five miles per hour but, everywhere you went. But what's interesting is my, I learned very young how to shift because my sisters would always let me shift the car mm-hmm. when I was with them. So I learned how to drive it and uh, I learned, you know, I learned all these great skills. But nowadays – these kids are uh, – they're taking cars at even younger ages than 14. I have my children. They all want to drive really young as well. And we're like, no, we're not letting you drive. 
So you got them the golf cart instead. No, we didn't do that. We're not that. Really? We're not that neighbor. We're not the kind that just – we don't have – everyone in our neighborhood has golf carts but us. And my kids want Vespas and we don't have any. That isn't, that's like the coffee, right? No, that's, the, uh, that's just a scooter. Oh, is that Nespa? Nespa. Uh, Nespa is – I think it means – isn't that Nespa? Isn't it? I don't know. Um, Sounds like coffee. Yeah, I think that's Nescafe. Oh, OK. Yeah. Uh, again, we're, we're helping with a lot of vocabulary today <laughs> in multiple <laughs> and languages. Spelling. And spelling. We got a lot to cover. We'll be um, also not just talking with Heather about how to empower your kids, but also we've got uh, BYU Sports Nation that will be up. We'll be talking to them about the the ins, the outs, the the keys, what's going on with BYU Sports. It's all about A devastating football. loss. A devastating loss last night for Jeff Simpson and Spencer Linton's team. But Spencer wasn't there. Maybe that's why we lost. Maybe that is why you lost. And uh, uh, by the way, a little update on Jeff's leg. It's doing a lot better. Uh, It smells less (laughs) gamey, which is half the battle. Now it smells sweet like honey. smells a little less smoky, too, because, you know, I mentioned it felt like it was on fire. Yeah. We I think gave, it was at one point. We gave you some um, – I gave you some honey, some meta honey for your leg and uh, now you smell like a baby back rib. And, you know, thank you for having the gypsy hex it before you gave it to me. Yeah, I that think really that good. really made the Is difference. It helping? Yeah. You thought it was going to be like some other cream but it's really honey. It's yeah. medicinal level honey, so it's not like something you'd put on your toes. I think there's sugar in it. Oh, there is. Because there are little chunks of grainy – Yeah, that's – you know, no, it is. And there's also live spores, which apparently do something. I think I saw little parasites with sharp teeth munching uh-huh. around. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. I guess we shouldn't disparage Meta Honey. It's actually saving your leg. We were worried as a doctor. I was worried that we were going to have to amputate. And I'm glad that we instead didn't. We just put some of the stuff on it, and now you're getting better. For some reason, I'm losing all the hair on this leg, too, but that wouldn't be related to the Meta Honey, right? No, no, no. That's, okay. No, that's probably just related to the shaving. Hmm. Um, so we'll get to all that fun stuff. Plus, of course, uh, we'll do a hero story and, uh, and more headlines. We've got just lots of empty news, news that you didn't even know you needed to know. And it's all straight ahead. Plus, we just got a thumbs up from Jerem Jordan, which means uh, he's in the, he's in the town. He's in the house. I mean, he's ready to, to he's ready to play. Now, I haven't seen Spencer today, so we'll see if maybe Jerem's in charge. Hmm. All that straight ahead. But first, let's get uh, to the headlines with uh, Mr. South. Terry South. A teenage passenger was taken to a hospital for mental health treatment after he opened an emergency door on an airplane minutes after it landed in San Francisco. Oh, boy. Then slid down the wing onto the tarmac, officials said. The teen traveling on Copa Airlines Flight 208 from Panama was not injured during Tuesday's incident at San Francisco Airport, and the airport spokesman said. The 17-year-old, a U.S. citizen, was traveling alone, appeared to be in emotional distress during the flight. Oh, boy. The teen's name has not been released. City police said Wednesday he was taken for treatment and will not be charged by local authorities. However, the airlines pointed out that it's against federal law to open an emergency door without having been instructed to do so by the crew. But it also seems like they knew he was in distress during the flight, so yeah. maybe the crew should have been... So no word Paying attention to him. Yeah, no word on any federal crimes if yeah. they're going to charge him with anything yet. He was stressed out. After jumping in the plane, the teenager was held at an, by an airfield construction crew until police arrived. 
Witnesses say the teen seemed fidgety and anxious throughout the seven-hour flight. He was already on the ground and running by the time the passengers realized the door had been opened. Well, seven hours will make anybody fidgety. Yeah, me too. Well, and honestly, is that not a better way to exit the airplane than some of the other videos we've watched? Certainly faster. There's a lot of ways to get off an airplane today, and that's a better way. Dozens of children taken to a local hospital after a chemical leak at a YMCA swimming pool in Durham, North Carolina. The leak, which occurred at approximately 3 p.m., affected 40 children ages 6 to 12, as well as two adults. Uh, six children initially considered to be in serious condition at the scene, but they were improved. They improved after being treated at the hospital. Uh, the leak appeared to involve chemicals used for pool disinfection, which, of course, is what it's going to be. It's going to be chlorine, right? Uh. Which reacted with each other, causing nauseous fumes. Fire officials said at the press conference, fire officials added that the leak appears to have been caused by a mechanical issue. Mm. So, you know, pools, they're fun. Pools. They, they bring a lot of surprises. They do. They do. Uh, Wall Street rejoiced early Wednesday when the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a benchmark for the U.S. 30 U.S. companies, rose above 22,000 for the first time and then celebrated again when it closed above 22,000. What is the deal? Thank you, Mr. Trump. But fewer than 15% of Americans own individual stocks, and about half the country has no money invested in the stock market at all, not through a 401k or IRA, mutual funds, or pension funds, according to the Federal Reserve. Those people are probably not as excited about the Dow's new high watermark, and it's sprint towards uh, from 18,000 last November to the 22,000 now, known as the Trump bump. The Trump bump, which Trump is bump. by the, the way, s- totally different than the baby bump. It is. We got to remember that it, different bump. The Trump bump is sustained by robust corporate earnings. Only people with assets like stocks and houses are benefiting, and that's why this recovery has been weak says uh, this chief international economist from uh, the bank they talked to. So a guy, a banker's like, yeah. He goes, the New York Times uh, reported, according to Gallup, 89% of households earning 100000 or more have some amount invested in the stock market versus only 21% of families earning $30,000 or less. Yeah. So in other words, if you're a rich guy, it's pretty awesome. You're doing great. If, you, if you're like, you know, the vast majority of America, you're like... The economy's still not really moving like it should be if the stock market... But, you know, this is a funny... It's a really weird thing, right? Because I guess more people used to be invested in the stock market. Yeah. But for what? 30 or 40 years, every time the stock market goes up, we supposedly praise a president for having some power over this and everyone's seemingly happy, except mm-hmm. the reality is the poor and average among us are never involved in those investments ever. No. And... So, but we've been doing this account now. I think it's because it's because President Trump would actually be having positive news. But now the news is it's kind of weak because it's only the rich getting richer, right? And the poor getting poorer. You're a rich girl. <laughs> wow, lots of music on this. Show you can today. survive on your old man's money. Doesn't that sound? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Doesn't that sound like Yoda? Yeah, that kind of does. And that Seagulls song? It does. It does. It sounds exactly like that. Finally, after years of insisting it wasn't so, the TV industrial complex now admits that it's contracting. The number of people paying for TV has been declining for several years, but that's not the only part of the TV world that's shrinking. Actual TV sets are disappearing from homes. After years of steady increase, the number of TVs in homes shrank to an average of 23 in 2015, down from an average of 2.6 per household in 2009. They're disappearing. 
What is the, happening? The best case scenario put forward by people who sell TV programming for a living is that Americans are watching TV on devices that aren't TVs, like laptops, tablets, and phones. Right. The flip side of that argument, you can do lots of other things on those devices, which creates an even more more competition for TV viewing. Matt, where in, where in your house are the 2.3 TVs located? Well, we have uh, we have a few more than that. You've got 3.7. Wait, I think TVs? we have 4.8 hmm. TVs. But um, kitchen, living room, kind of family area, bedroom, which we never use. My that, wife insists against it completely. Yeah, we. I actually do too. Except we don't. We don't. It's just another room because our kids would fight about what they could watch. So we would just say, you "Just took the TV. Go in there." And right. Then we have one in a family room downstairs that no one ever goes into. And then my, then my kid just has a video game television. Can right. I tell you what's on my wish list? You mentioned the bedroom. I think my wife is not really a big fan of it either, but. <laughs> There is a picture frame mount that you Mm. can put on your wall above your bed. Yeah. So on one side, it looks like it's just a painting or a picture. Then you press this button, and it opens up and tilts down, and it's a TV on the other side. So you're laying there in bed looking up. So you're laying down watching TV. Is that good? That's the only situation where you don't have to, you know, use your arm to prop your head up. You can just lay there. And look up. That's kind of weird. It's the most glorious. Th- I went to a dentist's office once where he had a TV yep. in the ceiling. Yeah. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. My, Did, ki- my kid's dentist has a TV in the ceiling. Ours have that too, except Bluetooth, beautiful. Bluetooth headphones. I can't do it because the guy's also got his hand in my mouth. My dentist right. has an old drop ceiling. It's just kind of boring. So, so if, I, if I had that, if, like, <laughs> if, if honestly, if I had a television on my ceiling... I would probably start salivating. But no hands. Because I'm thinking the dentist is going to be here There will soon. be no hands. It's from the safety of your own home. Wow. Nothing will be in your mouth unless you put some food in there. Maybe. Now if you can change the channel by blinking, you wouldn't have to move. That's coming. Wow. This is good. It's good to be alive now. When I, I mean, was... sure, there's cures to cancer and certain things like that. I mean, they're starting to appear. But even better, there's TV on the ceiling. When I was a kid, we had a TV in every bedroom. So it was, what, four bedrooms. So you had four TVs, one in the front room, one in the kitchen, yeah. and one in the shed, and they were all on cable. What was the shed TV for? Well, we had to go out and play with my dog. Okay. And so while we were out there, the rule was it was like 30 minutes of playing with the dog, which was, you know, <laughs> it's a big ask for a kid. So we'd get out there, and uh, I'd just turn on the TV and just hang out in the shed not really play with my dog and watch TV. I what? thought it was a motivator to get the dad out to the shed to do some work. There was some of that. I thought it was for the dog. No. Like the I, dog I, had his own TV. I, I'd get in trouble because I hadn't played with the dog, and so I'd end up watching the, the uh, NFL playoffs out oh, in yeah. the shed. And it was great because it was in the wintertime, so mm-hmm. it was cold. It was like Ooh. I was in the stadium. Yeah, you were like playing it. That was great. Just be careful when you're sawing wood while you're watching TV. Hmm. No, I remember. Well, you – yeah, you've got electrical problems anyway. You've got issues with electricity. I don't want to bring that up again. Or just issues in general. Like, yeah. But you've been shocked – I'm shocked every morning on this show. You are? Doesn't take much, does it? It does not take much. Uh, here's a crazy story. Um, if you're a librarian, be careful. 
because you never know what's in those on those old shelves in the library. A Massachusetts librarian on her first day on the job has come across live military shells from the Civil War. She found them inside a closet in her new office. Gleason Public Library Director Abby Nolan tells the Boston Globe she found the shells Thursday morning inside a box with a label explaining uh, that they've been examined by the munitions expert and they could be live. <laughs> so, so don't want to worry. Don't want to worry you, but they could be live. They, they've tested them out, and so that's why they probably kept them, I guess, in the closet. She called police, who evacuated the library in Carlisle. The state bomb squad later arrived and determined the shells were live. It took the shells uh, to the town transfer station to safely detonate them. The shells turned out to be part of the Gettysburg collection that was donated to the town years ago, and the library reopened it after about uh, was reopened after about three hours. Didn't they make those for Lincoln's reading of the Gettysburg or the Gettysburg Address? Yeah. In fact, um, apparently the shells were originally um, they were originally tested four score and seven years ago. Hmm. Yeah. So. Then our forefathers, the letter read, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Is that right? Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Yeah. Am I I there? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, We talked about math earlier in the show. Yeah. Hate it. Four score and seven years ago is another one of those where it's like, okay, 20 years per score and there's four of them. That's 80 Plus seven. Eighty-seven. Mm. That took me ten seconds. By the way, speaking of taking a long time to score, uh, <laughs> your game last night, apparently you lost. Yes. Now, we were playing with one less person in the field than they had. They were all strapping young lads that had giant muscles, and they were all tall. Uh, t- t- describe your team. Uh, old men. In fact, the name of the team is Old Men Rule. Wow. And we were playing with about four injured players, myself included. So really, you were all only injured because you've been playing in a league together. So the four infielders minus the pitcher, so you got your first, second, shortstop, and third, all injured. What, What position do you play? Shortstop. Yeah, that makes sense. And I made a few errors, but I also scored several runs. The thing is... They figured out by the second to last inning that if they would just hit ground balls instead of trying to knock it out of the park, they would win the game. And it worked like a charm. Did they, they say, beat us. hey, hit it to short, hit it to short, <laughs> hit it to the shortstop? They did say keep it on the ground. Did I don't, know, I don't know if that was about me. Did you notice, too, by the way, that um, they always – that they got mad when you had to have your chair out there because you'd always just take that chair and sit out there at short? Yeah, your yeah, team they weren't didn't happy like that. About that no. But you got to rest your leg. We were ahead half the game. Well, we just had a lousy couple of innings at the end. You know what? Well, we're proud of you anyway. But Saturday is our chance to redeem ourselves, or your chance to wrap it all up and end it. Hmm. Just thanks go. for the confidence. No, you can boost. go either way. I'm saying it's you can go either way. Maybe I should distribute the Medi honey to the rest of the team. Uh, I would. And then we'll be ready. What? Ready for Medi. Why don't you um, – in fact, you could even probably have everyone suit up and Medi honey could maybe provide uniforms. Hmm. Maybe they could be a sponsor. Okay. The old, the old men's team sponsored by Medi honey. 
And every Sweet time we hit a home run, Medi Honey donates $1,000 to the local charity of our choice. Yeah, I would just I, – I wouldn't go that far yet. Huh? I mean maybe they can just donate more Meta Honey for you. We got a lot to cover, folks. Uh, up next, Heather Johnson is going to be talking to us about how to, um, how to help your kids have some freedom. Don't let your fears uh, ruin their lives and make it so they can't ever do anything. How to instill some confidence and let them make some choices of their own. That's all straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, on the phone with us is Heather Johnson. She is uh, one of our contributors on the on the program and uh, is uh, the author of the book Family Fun Fridays. Also, you can find more information at her website, familyvolley.com. And sh- her job basically is a professor here at Brigham Young University, and she helps families learn how to live healthier, uh, active lives together. Heather, how are you, my friend? I'm good. It's good to be here. Good to have you. And you had a little uh, little emergency with your kid that uh, you just had to take care of. Yeah, you guys, I appreciate the flexibility. I had the first situation ever after six kids where while literally walking out the door, someone got sick. The sick Ugh. where you're like, yep, we're oh, turning around. Okay, we're, we're staying, staying there. Here. We're staying there. No, and not even <laughs> a problem. We can, always, we can always accommodate that. So, Heather, it, it, it's a scary time for some parents. They, they listen to all these stories on the news. They think the world is so unsafe. But then it feels like we might be scaring our kids and not giving them the freedom they need to grow. It's exactly right. And now one of those times where parents start to get really uptight, right? Because we're sending kids back to school. We're contemplating, do they walk or not? Do they take the bus or not? Can they buy their own lunch or not? All those little things where we get really worried about the dangers that we hear about and that we know exist. And so we kind of clam up a little bit. We get a little overprotective. And yet it's the safest time in the history of humankind. It is, it is, and that's really interesting, right? And we can touch on that kind of as we work through today, but what we have to realize is that there's a huge danger in avoiding risk, in not letting our children have an opportunity to experience life, right? We take away their freedom, and so we think, oh, the closer we keep them to us, the more we protect them, the more we supervise and keep them contained, the better they'll be. But really, there's a huge price to that, to taking away a child's freedom to explore or to solve problems. Mm. Or even even to manage boredom, right? We're we're constantly thinking, let's entertain them so they don't get bored. Right. Well, we need to let them get bored so they can figure out what to do when they are, when they are. Well, then then exactly then they run into because we've covered it all, we've buffered everything, we've been the bumper of their uh, life between them and the real world. Eventually, when they leave us, they're in for a really scary ride because they've never experienced any of this. It's true. They've never seen those things. And there's a lot of research, too, that kind of looks at what some of the troubles are. You know, kind of if we do compare and contrast, parents who are always warning their kids to be careful raise kids who won't trust their own observations or instincts. True, huh? And so so you can see how that's trouble. Uh, I actually love that one because I catch myself all the time. You know, a kid will be running down the street and it's like, hey, don't run. Hey, be careful. But we actually know that kids who are constantly being told to be careful and not fall actually fall more. Really? Yeah. So we can see how we set ourselves up a little bit. Uh, We know that when we don't allow our children to trust their own physical abilities, 
then they grow up not trusting their own bodies, what they can do, what they're capable of, what they're willing to try. So a child who isn't allowed to explore their physical capabilities won't go out and try something new because they don't trust they have a body that can handle it. Yeah. They, they've never tested themselves. Uh, or they do really, try it and they they overextend because they didn't know their limit. Right. And it's then, exactly right. And goes the other way. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, we, that's, so that's we run into lots parenting. of those things. No, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, so we kind of have to start deciding that protecting our kids too much is detrimental because it is. And so we have to figure out where this place is where we can feel safe about our children, but also recognize that more than being supervised and uh, what researchers call it, they look at it as supervised exercise. That's actually not what our kids need or actually our kids need freedom. Interesting. Yeah. The freedom to, I guess, create the freedom to experiment, to try things, to make mistakes. All of those things. So, again, when we look at the research, we know that kids need to organize their own activities, not just follow what an adult says. Okay. We know that kids need to solve their own problems, not just have parents solve them for them. We know that kids need to learn how to negotiate a social world with other children, not have their parents tell them how to negotiate that world. And that they need to regulate their own actions without an adult interfering with those things. And we get in the so, way, I guess. So so how do we start to do this? Because it almost is more like the fear of the parent is impeding this. Um, it's exactly right. So how do we get out of the way? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to shift our focus. We have to decide that instead of worrying about protecting them from danger, you know, we have this mentality where it's constantly, how can I protect my child from danger? Really, our thought process should be, how can we prepare our children for life? That's what we need to be thinking about. And that's a huge shift, right? Because danger means we're only focusing on the negative. Preparing them for life means we're focusing on the good, on the positive, on the growth, on the building. And so we have to have that mind shift first. The first thing we have to do. Yeah, and and, and that shift, I mean, I guess guess it's – it might – that shift seems hard for some because ugh, there's such a level of I, I got to trust. Right. Then we have to trust them, but we have to realize that by preparing them, it actually frees us up as parents. Because when we worry about protecting them from danger, we're constantly worried about can they handle it? Do they know what to do? Well, what if it approaches them? Do I? And that's our concern. But when we protect them for life or, excuse me, prepare them, we now should be able to rest assured that we've given them the tools they need, the practice that they need, the understanding that they need in order to handle a danger should it arise, or even the tools to avoid the danger in the first place. Yeah. That comes through preparing them to live. And so we actually will be able to worry less and feel much more free as parents when we know we've prepared them. So we want to make that mental shift. It's not about what's scary, let's protect them from it. It's about how do I prepare my child to live, to face what days bring and weeks bring and adulthood brings. And it seems like that, in a way, it should be kind of easy to do because life is bringing stuff every day. So you've already got all the content. You just need to kind of guide them through it. Right. And really, this starts to come down to us as parents, where we have to decide we're willing to put in the energy and effort it takes to teach them on the front end. Because we think, well, it's a lot harder. I'm going to keep you home. I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to let you see what's out there. But it's actually a lot easier to send them out and teach them 
if we're willing to put forth the effort. And we put it forth at the beginning so that we have a whole life where they govern themselves. Or else we can have to govern them till they're 40 still in our basement like we always joke. <laughs> yeah, right. Heaven forbid. Let's not let that happen. Um, okay. True. And so, we're so, trying not to do that. That's right. So we're instead we're going to prepare them to live and I guess see every day, every activity, every experience – not as, you know, not as captive, keeping them captive, but instead of instead helping them safely go out and starting start to experience the world. Right. And we're going to do that when they're very young. We're going to start right away because they need it that young. Once we start to do that, we're going to, again, put something else in a place where we're going to stop worrying so much about unlikely dangers. Now, I know this is a sensitive issue, and as a parent, I feel it. You know, I know neighbors, you know, mothers I I associate with all feel it. But when we look at studies, and in fact, I read a really recent study where parents were polled on the biggest fear for their children. The number one fear was that their kids wouldn't live up to their potential. Huh. Now, we can't do a lot with that one, right? That's that's a little out of our league with what we're talking about. But the second, which came in very close to that first, Parents' biggest fear is that a stranger would attack or kidnap one of their children. Oh, wow. Now, that's the biggest fear. It's one we all have. But when we then go a little further with, with research, there's a very, very low likelihood that anyone will ever face this danger. In fact, my kids, our six, are much more likely to get injured in a car accident when I'm driving them to school than to be abducted or to be attacked by a stranger. Hmm. And yet you're so – you're more confident when you're driving them to school that nothing will happen. Right. right. And yet I'm putting all my focus on that type of thing instead of recognizing, you know, I'm putting it all on the, on the danger and I'm not letting them walk and I'm not letting them explore and I'm not letting them play out front. It must be in the back when really that shouldn't be where the emphasis is placed. So we have to stop worrying about those things that are so unlikely. It doesn't mean we don't prepare them. We teach them. We prepare them. But the stress will do us no good that way. That's right. So one of the greatest ways to combat this biggest fear for parents is to stop teaching stranger danger. Hmm. We've heard this for years, right? It's, yeah. It's something, you know, I have to be careful not to say to our kids. I'm sure that vocabulary has run through your mind at least. We've heard it for years and years. Instead of teaching them to be afraid of strangers, we need to teach them how to recognize adults that are good, that are trustworthy. So the way we would break this down is my focus should be on teaching our children really appropriate ways for adults to interact with kids. That should be what we're teaching our children so that they can recognize when someone's behavior is unusual or inappropriate towards them or around them. Boy, that's good because then, I mean, then then they're not, it's not out of fear. They know what to do. If there's a problem, things get weird. Go find the healthy, strong adult. It's exactly, they know what to expect. And, you know, as silly as this will sound, and it it dates me, but I had a friend in in elementary school, we were in fourth grade, and I'll never forget, her grandma taught her about stranger danger and said, anyone with a tattoo is bad. Mm. Anybody. Across the board, anybody. (laughs) And it's kind of that mentality where we teach our kids that it's, it's an appearance that tells us that maybe there's a danger or a concern, which isn't true. That's not, we, we can't go by that. You know, it's just like when right. you go to eat an apple and it looks beautiful on the outside, so you choose it, but when you open it up, it has worms. That's not what we can judge. And so if we'll teach our children how to recognize good, trustworthy adults, if we teach them what's appropriate, appropriate ways for adults to interact with kids, that's empowering them to live 
instead of be afraid. And it's also giving them the tools they need to go out and have freedom to explore and to grow. So it's a big shift. That's a, that's a change from what we've heard for so many years. Mm, so true, isn't it? And you got to, at some point, I mean, I mean, do something different, right? If we can't, we can't expect to keep doing the same thing over and over. And what we learned many, many years ago probably isn't going to apply now um, to the same degree. Uh, we're speaking with Heather Johnson, and we're going to take a break, come back and continue this discussion about how to give your kids more freedom, how to help them grow up in a world where they don't have to fear everybody and everything and instead can use their freedom to become really powerful Uh, active um, agents in their own lives. That's all straight ahead. More with Heather when we come back. Welcome back, friends. On the phone with us is Heather Ann Johnson. She's a professor here at Brigham Young University and uh, is um, works with families to help them create family activities that draw and grow a closer family, a more tight-knit, healthy family unit. You can find out more on her website, familyvolley.com. Today she's talking about how to uh, give your kids freedom, how to raise them in a safe way, but not raise them out of fear, raise them out of their their strengths and give them the courage to go out and experience and live life. Heather, thanks again for being with us. Oh, I appreciate it. This is, a, this is good stuff, a good topic, especially headed back into the school year. Absolutely. So we, we basically want to um, kind of prepare them to live instead of like, you know, protecting them from the evils of the world. What are some other things, like you were talking about, don't quit teaching stranger danger. Instead, teach them to recognize healthy adults and and how to go get help if they need it. What else should we be teaching them? So we're going to make sure that we we loosen up about those unlikely dangers, like you're saying, right? Our kids are much much less likely to run into trouble than even when I was a child or when you were a child. So there's a huge change there. Instead, we need to teach them how to handle real risks, the things that they will face, right? Our kids will face falling down on a playground. Yep. That is going, I guess maybe there's a chance it won't, but really it will. That will happen, right? Yeah. Our children will face a bully. Right. They will face those two things. So instead of making the focus, the paranoia, and, and not preparing them to live, we need to be focusing any energy and effort on how to handle the risks that are a part of their life, that are 100% certain for them. Well, like see, two of them. seeing something online that they're not supposed to be seeing, that's going to happen. And apparently it's going to happen by the age of 11 or whatever. They're going to see something pornographic on um, online. And we always, you know, we, we want to protect them and not let them have any of that ever happen to them. But I guess teaching them how to handle it. What they do when they see these things, what they do when somebody's bullying them, it gives them the skills. It's exactly right. And we can only protect them for so long, too, right? So this is where it's so important to recognize that we're trying to raise children who become adults that give back, contribute to society, can, can be responsible, can you know live themselves, handle things themselves. And so when we keep them from the things that are going to happen, from the risks that are 100% real... Eventually, when they're not with us, they don't know what to do, hmm. and so they don't know how to handle those things. One of the best ways to teach them to handle the likely scenarios, the likely risks, is simply role-playing, 
putting them in experiences with you where you talk through and act out what that would look like, what we should do, what happens, so that they can understand. You know, we, we remember years and years ago with the D.A.R.E. program where it was all about, you know, what do you say? Just say no. Right. And as silly as that is, you know, maybe even now, it is so applicable. It's teaching them through role play, just like that program did. When this happens, just say no. When this happens, just it, it becomes a part of who they are and provides them with the skills and tools they need when they're faced with it. That's great. So we want to teach them how to handle the right risks. And it, and it also of, allows you to kind of build their confidence and to open these dialogues up on these issues. It does. And, we, you know, we can talk about that. Some safe ways to explore risk, right? So, for example... It's time to let our babies explore, not baby-proof everything in existence. Right. Right? goes very much against what we hear. Uh, I have a number of friends that I know very closely who have actually have had a company come in and baby-proof their whole house. <laughs> and so instead of shutting down all those risks, we need to teach our children to stay away from a stove because it is hot. Or that cabinet does have poison in it. We wouldn't open it up. So that's where we teach them instead. And the sooner they can learn to explore safely, the less we have to be so stressed out every day. I love that. That's great. So it really, it really benefits us on both ends. Now, with that one, we do need to go with our comfort level. So if there is something in your home, like maybe the poison really has you so anxious, lock that up. Yeah. Right? But there has to be room where we teach so they can safely explore. And I'd much rather have my child learn to safely explore at home and manage stairs and understand hot and no fingers get slammed indoors here than at a friend's house or on a playground or at a school. Yeah. So there's there's kind of a very specific. Give us one more. We've got one time for one more idea. Uh, I would say one more that's really important is to give your child more freedom with scary things. And, and this is where we have to swap our fear for freedom. Hmm. And so when we think about just that phrase, to swap fear for freedom, it's a really good way for us as parents to sit back and ask ourselves, is there something that our child's been asking to do that we've been too scared to let them try? Oh, yeah. Like, like your family, you have a perfect example of that, like riding a motorcycle. It's exactly right. I've I've lived that one for sure. And I've lived it through our children where I said no to that for a really long time. And instead, my husband, who is so wonderful and was very (laughs) pro-motorcycle, so it it benefited in a lot of ways, taught them and encouraged them. But he gave them so many tools first that it took away all the fear. And he did the same with me so that I was willing to try. So if there's something your child's been asking to do, even if it's as little as can I play in the front yard instead of the back, Mm. instead of saying no or being too scared to let them try, we need to figure out a way to let them practice in a little bit safer way and build up to it. That's and good. we should be doing that. You know, our kids at 11 are able to walk to the store and buy themselves a soda. Our kids, you know, when they're young, four and up, should be able to go to a couple hours of a day camp. Right. We've got to build up to those things. You know, our little four-year-olds should be able to use a plastic knife and butter their own toast. Right. And we teach them knife safety and grow from there. So it really is this willingness to say, you know what, I recognize that this freedom is the biggest blessing I can give you as I raise you. And I'm not going to let the unlikely 
affect the fact that I'm going to empower you to be strong and healthy and confident in yourself. That's so good. Heather, thank you so much. Great insight. Again, Heather Ann Johnson, you can find out more on her website, familyvolley.com. Also, go check out her self-published book, Family Fun Fridays, and uh, just continue to glean information from... uh, one of our great contributors. We are going to uh, be going to BYU Sports Nation up next and uh, figure out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, that's the music, and you know, every time we hear that music, we know it's time to get down there to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and uh, celebrate with them. Spencer and Jerem, hello, gentlemen. Talkie, 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 talk. Ooh, is that, I didn't know that, that, those are the words to the song. I did not know the Now we can hear you. Oh, can you hear us now? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi, how you doing? Good. How you guys, you guys doing? You guys having a good day? Yeah, we're good. I just thought we'd start it off with some South Pacific uh, throwback. <laughs> That's nice. I like it. Hey, by the way, I um, I just wanted you guys to know we're celebrating Watermelon Day. Does that matter to you at all? Are you are you into watermelon? One hundred percent. Oh yes. yeah, I love it. When when you guys eat watermelon, is it the water or the melon you really like most? It's the melon. Hmm. I agree. I, I don't know uh, how else to answer that question. Well, it's part of the melon. Do, the do water you, is part of the melon. Yeah, I understand that. Do you guys do like you guys it. like seedless yeah. watermelon, or do you like to have Definitely to contend? Seedless. You like it's the seedless. The blessing of living in twenty seventeen. I haven't I haven't seen a normal watermelon with black seeds like in five years. Really? And yeah, no, the only thing they offer at my local grocery store. Are seedless watermelons? What? Like I can't buy anything but that. So what do you spit? Um, sunflower seeds. Yeah, sunflower seeds. That's a good way to uh... dill flavored. Oh, <laughs> now you're talking. Uh-huh. Now you're talking. Hey, um, here's a question for you guys. Uh, well, first of all, Spence, I don't know if you know, but your team lost last night because you weren't there. <sighs> My team lost too. Oh, did yours? Okay, see. So are we playing each other? Everyone's At losers. Fifteen a.m. Saturday? Yes, we are. Are you really? Which field? Number we're playing each other. Number two. We're playing each other. Yeah. Field two. Oh yeah. my goodness! Well, we're in the same division. This is going to be great. What we ought to do is send Palakiko with a microphone, and we could maybe get some great audio from the game. See, maybe see the guy beatboxing in the hallway. Um, no, he's usually the guy. He sings at the top of his lungs. Same guy. Yeah. You'd need to bring a sensor along, though, too. If you know, you got to watch out for Jerem. Well, yeah. But Jerem is um, – Jerem, maybe you could actually help Jeff off the field with his chair because he – a lot of times he takes a little chair out there to shortstop and just has to sit down on it. And he fields and throws from that position, which uh-huh. is incredible arm incredible. strength. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of the Cody Seeger of BYU Intramural. He's, he's really well known that way. Um, <laughs> so that will be great. We will. We'll send Kiko down there with a microphone because there's nothing he'd rather be doing on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Than, than, oh, yeah. than doing the audio for this. Um, by the way, guys, I, this, it just drives me crazy. Um, Mayweather apparently is going to earn $300 million in 36 minutes or less um, with one Spencer fight. Linton-like numbers. 
I mean, and that's what I was thinking. I had to ask you guys because that's – what is this? BYU Sports Nation money? Yeah. Well, listen. Sacred funds. Good for him, but I've never seen a U-Haul make it to the grave. So, Oh, wow. That's a great Man, point. Deep. That is a great point. But I bet he'll own his own. He won't even – I mean, he won't need a U-Haul. He'll pay the IRS. He's gotta, then he'll pay his tithing. He's got to pay his tithing. That's what? thirty. That's $30 million. <laughs> Then the IRS will be about another two sixty million, so he'll have ten million left over. So, would you guys honestly? Would you get in the ring if if you knew all you had to do was stay on your feet as long as you could, and it wouldn't go longer than thirty six minutes? Would you Would you jump in the ring for a million dollars? One hundred percent, yes. Yeah. How about five? I would never look the same or be the same. How about five hundred grand? Mm. Probably. How about a hundred? Thirty-six minutes is too long, though. Like, if you're saying like one round with Floyd Mayweather, yeah, Flo- still, I'm still nervous. Well, about if you've that. got a train to go twelve rounds with Floyd Mayweather, it has to be at least a million for me. Oh, really? Is that like the at posterity? Least. Yeah. It, it it probably needs to be ten or more. Ugh. A million bucks go a long way. I mean, don't you think? Really, though, you'd probably be out in two punches. Oh, one punch. Yeah. One punch. I'm gone. See ya. I mean, so really what you're saying is for a concussion, you'll, pay, you'll be paid a million dollars. What's the cost of a concussion? I mean, yeah, really, what's it worth what's to What's the cost of potential death? You can learn something. No, you can legit. dance around him, too. You don't have to engage him in the ring. Yeah, but... Uh, I, he can come after you, great, whatever, but, like, you can... You could just scream and run, though, right? Oh, that's happening regardless. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, I'd pay to and see then, this. And then I turn it into a wrestling... Situation. There you go. Yeah, you just want to hang on him, wouldn't you? You'd get him close, and then just get him in, get him in the grasp, and then just hang on him. Okay. So, what's on your show today, gentlemen? Uh, Let's start with this. BYU has a defensive lineman who sat out last year. He had to sit out because of team rules, but he's back and better than ever. His name is Sione Takitaki. Mm. He's getting national attention. Articles in Fox Sports, ESPN, the Associated Press. What he says he wants to do this year that very few have done in the last decade. Wow. What? I guess we'll find out. Plus, Jamal Williams, live from Green Bay Packers camp. That'll be awesome. That's cool. And Butch Powell, BYU's smiling, laughing linebacker. Butch Powell. And my 10 and 10 uh, on the wide receivers, the top 10 receivers BYU will face in 2017. I asked Butch which teammate he likes to hit the most mm-hmm. and without hesitating he gave me a very interesting answer you're quarterbacks gonna, you're gonna want to hear that oh it's coming up everybody wants to hit a quarterback anything else did we mention jamal williams jerem i did i yeah. think you did that's from well, he's worth two mentions right double worth two men- this jay swag daddy baby yeah what did the offensive coordinator in green bay say about jamal williams oh how cool and what did tom homo what is he going to continue to do next year oh did he, athletic director. did he just sign a new agreement? With something. Hmm. That's all straight ahead, boys. Good luck to you. We love them. Spencer and Jerem are their names. And BYU Sports Nation is their game. You're not going to want to miss it. And remember, uh, there are two people that will be going head-to-head in intramural sports on Saturday. That's so exciting. And Jeff will be there. And I think, think Jerem's team has a bunch of old men, too. Really, I don't know that I would. I, I don't know that that's what I'd call them. Is that offensive? As as one who is an older gentleman, I mean middle age. So you just said older gentleman. How about we say older gentleman? Yes, 
I, I'd like to say men in their subprime. Like it's men a of sub- a certain age. Hmm? I, I, just, I, I like to just think of myself more as a stud. That's what it, okay, there's, to there's nothing offensive about men of a certain age. It's the most vague description you could give. You're a man and you have a certain age. But why would, why would we make it about our age? Seems like we ought to just make it men of a certain caliber. Hmm. Well, we're all judged and yeah. by our age. It's all good. It's all good. It's all about the number. It's always about the number. Hey, so a 926-pound Mako shark was caught off the New Jersey coast. By the way, I think it's Mako. I used to think it was a Mako shark, but think- I've been watching. I've been watching Shark Week, and they keep calling it Mako because they love macadamia nuts. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Macadamia nut shark uh, was so the the shark was caught off the coast of New Jersey, but it won't be recognized as a state record because more than one angler angler helped catch it. The twelve foot long shark uh, was caught Saturday about a hundred miles offshore, and it beats the last shark, which was an eight hundred and eighty pound tiger shark caught in nineteen eighty eight. But because six fishermen involved were involved in reeling in the shark. It's been disqualified. Come on. Do you know how hard it is to get a 926-pound Mako slash macadamia shark in your boat? 